and welcome to episode 15 of Adult Music. The 15? Podcast. 15. <laughs> 10 plus 5. <laughs> We're already on 15? Wow. Seems like it. Time goes well, by. Hmm. On the podcast with music for the mature mind. Yeah. Russ and Mike here as always, but wait. I smell something Oh no. French. What could that be? What could that be? Smells French. Oh. You know what that smell is? That is that is the smell of our French fried brains because we uh we we <laughs> we listen to French music all week. We did this this week, and we're and we're we're gonna French our audience. We're gonna get Frenched because we love them so much. So prepare to be Frenched, everybody. I uh, a little caveat at the beginning here, uh, although I do have uh, French blood running through my veins, uh, I did opt to study Spanish. In my education, which is not going to help me in my pronunciation. Yeah. So, uh, to our, we do have some listeners in France. Uh, I apologize uh, in advance for butchering any pronunciation, but it's all about the music here. We're not going to get caught up yeah. on uh, linguistic uh, sort of problems. And, we're going to get uh, caught up on timbre, aren't we? That's what we're going to get caught up on. That's French right. timbres. Yeah. I did study French, so I should be okay. But if anyone wants to well, write to me a complaint, feel here. free, because I want to learn. <laughs> okay. You have to help me out tonight, because right. we've and, got almost, well, what do we got? Five-sixth French program with a little yeah. Germanic-Austrian uh, addition it's all, at the end. It's another all-European. I think the Americans are going to get a little bent out of shape about that. We do. We seem to be like Eurocentric these days. I don't Not know what's happening Not to worry, next week that. I will have a dose of Americana in the jazz part anyway. No, I can't wait. That'd be great. But I'm actually looking forward to tonight because um, I have traded in my uh, Knob Creek uh, bourbon for the evening for a nice uh, Camus cognac. Oh, you've um, got a cognac. Which I have a, in my snifter right nice. here. And this is going to make me feel all ready for the, uh, for the, for the French music the that we're going to talk French about. The only French spirits I have left in my adult beverage uh, cabinet is a bottle. Uh, what is it? No. Uh, it's absinthe, and uh, having oh, had a good one, one a scary experience with absinthe uh, a while back, it just sits there. <laughs> so. You you had a scary experience with absinthe, like the um, like all those nineteen uh, twenties Americans in Paris. Well, uh, well, this is a whole. This could be a whole different episode, but let's no. just say that um, the uh, the supposed extra uh, high or lift you get from it it sort of peaks and goes away at some point and then it just becomes another drunk. But I believe I reached the uh, toxicity of Wormwood and woke up oh. in the middle of the night with a racing heartbeat and Ouch. it wasn't very pleasant. So I've never wanted to repeat that experience. So hmm. um, yeah, it's in there well, anyway. That? Next time you come over, let's try it. Yeah, I've drunk absinthe before with no, it's just kind of like yeah. any other alcohol really, course, except that it's is delicious. Not, <laughs> this is not the... I had a bottle of the uh, very fine French absinthe, and this is like a Czech variant, which is supposed okay. to be the highest two-zone content, which, which is probably not a good thing to go for. It I, sounded good at the time, but... I've heard that that, um, that whole idea that the wormwood and absinthe causes brain damage over time is nonsense, actually. I don't, I don't know what's true anymore. It's hard to get any accurate information, but I heard that was just a rumor that wasn't true. I hope so. But a lot, a lot of those artists did go crazy. I think a lot of them went crazy, though, like the painters, because they were inhaling toxic fumes from the paint they were using. Could be. I hope I don't have any bane damage. I mean, yeah. What did I say? Yeah. 
But Hemingway anyway. didn't go crazy, did he? He drank, he drank a lot of absinthe. He did he kill did. himself, but... Uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Was he crazy? He was Maybe he was crazy before he... That's possible, too. Before he left the States, you know? I don't you know. never know. Yeah. I know F. Scott Fitzgerald died before he could show any, any uh, hint of being crazy. Anyway. All right. Well, let's go way far before that time in France... Uh, back to around the time of Louis the Fourteenth. Actually, maybe a little after him. I'm not really sure. Actually, with this. All right. So our first album for tonight, we're going to the Baroque era. Back to the Baroque. Last week we didn't. Ha- we started in the Romantic era, and I always like my nice, uh, my nice uh, Baroque. Uh, Let's wind back to the Baroque. Hit, my big hit. My big Baroque uh, hit there. You know, uh, and um, the name of the album is uh, Forqueray. Unchained. Forcaray. I hope I said that right. Okay. We should say yeah? that this is um, French with uh, an ample dash of Italian. Yeah. We'll get to that in a moment. Anyway, I just wanted to say, in effect, it is on the Arcana label, um, which is a... And they're not really a, an Italian label, but I think they do a lot of their recordings in Italy. They're part of um, like the Out There group. They also put out Alpha and things like that. But... Um, the um the Arcana the the notorious for adult music Arcana label because that uh, Italian guitarist was recorded on this label and remember we had uh, it kind of sounded like it was recorded in a oh under you know, the blanket a, yeah under the blanket and yeah I'm happy to say this recording is not like that at all no not at all I was a little uh, worried about that I was like oh, is this whole label no. is this is how they record but this no one, it's not you the can case actually this hear, is really beautiful you can hear yeah. more than necessary on this album. Um, yeah, and that's a good thing. I don't want to say any kind of squeaks and things in here. They're kind of really charming. I, yeah, I liked it a right lot. There. Okay, you're right there. You hear the the chair creaking and all those things. I actually like the the woody creak. I mean, you know that these people aren't sitting in office chairs, and that always kind of relieves me. You know, there's well, something. Uh, yeah, you can hear um, you can hear Boeing extra Boeing mm-hmm. sounds. You can hear fretting uh, slides. It's that clear. Um, yeah, that's and part of the reason that is the case is because this is a uh, recording by the uh, viola da gamba. Should I say viola da gamba for this? Yeah, the bass viola, viola da gamba player Andre. Uh, there's another name I can't really say. Andre Lis Lislevant. We said right. Is that we, how we're going to pronounce this? Lislevant. Lislevant. Okay. I'm I'm guessing that's how it's said. Okay, Andre Lislevant. Now he is the son of the. Famous, if you listen to Baroque music, the famous Baroque guitarist Rolf Lislevant, who has made many recordings on his um, uh, mandolin, his Baroque guitar, and they're they're all fantastic. I can tell you that. Now his his son is playing the uh, viola da gamba. He also apparently plays the electric guitar, so he's uh, you know, not just wow. limited to classical music. So he got the mm-hmm. he 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 learned the craft, and then he went out and he made his uh, his uh, and he's being loud too, which is fantastic. Okay, now. People who, um, oh, I want to mention some of the other artists on this too. Um, this isn't just a viola da gamba. Oh, and incidentally, the father, Ralph Lislevand, is also on this record, okay, playing the Baroque guitar and mandolin, as are uh, Yadran Duncum, I hope I said that right, the Orbo and Baroque lute, and Paula Erdas on the harpsichord. Um, one of the great things about this album is the variety of sound that this ensemble produces. Uh, they've really arranged this program of music very well. Now, first of all... For, it's great. Yeah, yeah the, I mm. mean, there's the harpsichord comes in and goes out. Uh, there's actually, uh, I think, there's a couple of tunes with just the robo. 
And then the Orbo, yeah. Then there's some uh, just for the uh, Baroque guitar too, which is really yeah. nice. Though. You get some yeah. Baroque guitar strumming. Uh, pretty interesting. Now, incidentally, the viola da gamma is the main instrument here, and the main composer is Forcare. Forcare, and uh, the album is called Forcare Unchained, as I said. And the reason for that, it's kind of an odd name. I mean, <laughs> say it brings to mind like Philip Roth's book Prometheus Unchained, you know, or something like that, right? Like there's some. You expect know. something to escape while you're listening to it. Yeah, but w what it actually means is um, Fouquere was kind of, um, he he sort of melded the French sense of timbre, which is the, 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 the sound that the instrument makes. For example, if a piano and a violin play like a C note, you can tell which is the piano, which is the violin by their timbre. The piano has a piano sounding timbre. And the violin has a violin-sounding timbre. That's T-I-M-B-R-E, and it's pronounced timbre because English is messed up. That's but, right. It's not <laughs> that's, a tree falling in the woods. Yeah, that's not, it it's not, not timber. It's not timber. Okay, that's a that's a whole different uh, thing. Yes. All right. Timber is not dangerous usually. You're not going to build a boat with timber, are you? Okay. But um, it's he. They called it. Um, and the two Lislevans, the uh, father and the uh, son, said something similar about this. Um, he combined French timbre with the Italian influences, so rhythm and sort of um, the uh, virtuosity of the Italians. Um, Forcare, I, th I believe, said he wanted to um, play the make the viola play the viola da gamba the way Italians played the violin, and uh, the Italians were the great violinists of the period. Okay, just think of. Uh, who, who was playing, and also who was making violins at that time, okay? The, the Stradivarius and all of these people. Um, so, he's free and unattached to any national or temporal stylistic definition, so he is unchained, and that's where we get our title ah. from. Okay? But you have to say that Lislevan has... The sound of his <laughs> instrument is just completely gorgeous. Uh, yeah. As is... As are everyone's instrument on this oh, recording. Sure. This is—it's just a fantastic sounding recording. <laughs> you know, it's a—it's—it's—it's it's, it's really worth hearing just for the sound alone. Now, if you don't know the uh, viola da gamba, you may—if you're our age—you may remember back in your college days or around that time the movie uh, *Tous les Matins du Monde*, the uh, French film with Gérard Depardieu as Marin Marais. I think that's who he was, and his teacher Saint Colomb. Okay, um, and that really brought this music into uh, fashion um, I think that was I think Jordi Saval played the music on that on that uh, um, in that movie and that really catapulted him to fame as well if I'm remembering this right I'm not looking it up I'm just going from memory well um, Fourcaré is the main composer on this album but uh, Marais figures heavily as well yes and there's also yeah there's also a piece by Louis Couperin, not the famous Couperin. Oh, and it has to be said that uh, there's an Antoine Fourcaré is the, is the composer on this album. Uh, he's the father. There's also a Jean-Baptiste Fourcaré, the son, who published these works, okay? And so that we, for posterity, in this apparently very handsome leather-bound uh, uh, set of uh, music, music and uh, preserving his father's, um, you know, um, you know, work, uh, and, and even though they apparently didn't get along, Antoine Fouquet apparently had this a temper, shall we say? Oh, yeah, we all know what that means. Anyway, he doesn't. The temper, it's it's all just uh, beautiful in the music itself. You know, these these temperamental types are actually capable of um, writing some beautiful music, and we get that here. Um, a lot of these works are kind of um, 
kind of come across as like a theme in variations or something like that, or you know, with a few uh, exceptions. There are also some uh, witty. We start with um, Fourcroy Chacon La Buisson. He's got these like Chacon La Buisson. Now Chacon is um, a repeating bass line, and then there's a, sort of this um, this uh, improvised or kind of sounding like improvised melody on top of that that just keeps changing as the bass line repeats. So it's sort of like uh, if you, you can, if you want to think about it in rock and roll terms, it's like noodling over like a repeating bass line, um, except that the noodling is really high level here. <laughs> and you get in this one, you have the the harpsichord is sort of sparkling lightly on yeah. the top. And then, sparkling is a good word for what the harpsichord does on this album. It's yeah. a really they they achieve a really nice sound, and it's a little bit in the background as well. Harpsichords are often recorded very loudly and they're very very quiet instruments if you ever go to a harpsichord concert you have to be very quiet in order to just hear the uh yeah. the performer so you you never get an accurate sound of the harpsichord on the uh what i like recording. on a lot of these pieces yeah. the uh thoreau boys like um it it gets a really nice bass line and yeah. also very interesting counterpoint sometimes and that contrast yeah. with uh gamba's uh, especially his lyrical playing in that full sound, but the the sort of uh, plucking in the low register um, really creates you know a, two interesting sort of spheres to listen to that complement each other really well. And sometimes the harpsichord is there, and usually the harpsichord is in the very high register, and it's it's this extra sort of it's almost when I was listening to it and closed my eyes, it's almost like. Uh, sort of a starry sky above mm -hmm. it that's sort of you know yeah unusual to too because the harpsichord is usually playing uh, continuo which is kind of like the right. uh, outline in the chords but I guess but not um, here no yeah. yeah not here it's it's more of a solo instrument it's it's um it's actually nice to hear it this way it was, it was, a, it was a delightful surprise yeah, yeah the um the the program as I said the program is uh, arranged in such a way that the the you know the sound is always a surprise because there are all these different instruments coming in and going out. There are a few um, surprises too. Um, the next one is by Marais, Allemand de Double, and this is kind of comes across as like a theme in variations. The Double is sort of like a, uh, I guess, a faster version of that Allemand. Okay, so it's like a variation on it, really. Then we get a plaint, a very quiet, slow piece by Marais Marais. Yeah, this is nice. This is uh, really brooding. Yeah. And um, I highlighted this one as one I, I thought I, was yeah. particularly lovely. The, what I thought about, you know, not only this piece, this whole album, I really think they these guys may have all been having some of your cognac when they were uh, mm. drinking it. Because every piece, regardless of whether the, it's a slow tempo or a rather uh, quicker tempo, it's all extremely relaxed. There's never yeah. any sense of hurriedness uh, in it. So although it, it does have, you know, some of these Italian qualities of sort of a rhythmic interest, it's extremely relaxed and unhurried, uh, wh whatever tempo they take that's appropriate for the piece. And so it, it creates a total sort of feeling of very much relaxation and being at ease with the pieces and I thought that was very interesting um, kind of continuity through the whole album that yeah. um, I, you know I listened to it several times and then each mm. time I thought oh, they, they sound completely at home and relaxed with all of these tempos and uh, it's very interesting to me 
Yeah, the viola da gamba tends to come across as relaxed, and I think that has a lot to do with the, the instrument itself, the difficulty of really showing any agility on it. In fact, um, after these composers um, passed, I mean, the Italian uh, cello, the violoncello, the instrument we call the cello now, uh, just um, replaced it, basically, because it's, right. of its agility and its more focused tone. You'll hear that there's something really diffuse about the tone of the the uh, bass viola da gamba. It kind of... It, it sort of resonates a lot. It kind of... there's a, There are a lot of... Um, uh, how can I say? Sympathetic frequencies uh, ringing as this... Uh, you know, it's, it's not like a really focused, like, pearly kind of sound. It's, it's you know, that it makes. It's kind of... It's sort of fuzzy on the edges, like it sort of stretches out a bit into a, into a harmonic space, let's say. And all of these, um, whether the bass or the um, higher register instruments, they were all played between the legs, correct? So that yeah, uh, these were well, yes, that's right. These were actually. I'm not. Oh, I don't remember. I think the cello. Somebody had um, invented the idea of like putting the cello between your legs and like propping it up that way. I think they the viola da gamba. I'm not sure how they how these guys play it, but um, it might have been played like you know sitting in a chair with it by your side. I, I'm not really okay. sure. I think I'm not sure, what, but, what I'm saying but the is idea of putting the instrument between your legs was actually somebody or, actually came up with that, rather, and then that became the norm. Rather than putting it up on your shoulder, uh, even the higher register. That instruments were all bowed, well, you know, on mm. floor level, basically, uh, rather than holding them, you know, up to uh, sort of right. shoulder and neck level. Which uh, when I've seen pictures of it and right, paintings, it looks you can odd see, yeah. <laughs> to you know what came after that and how we imagine string instruments to be, you know, bowed and held. So, yeah, when we think of the 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 whole. The image of classical music today, the whole elegance of it—it's—it's it's, it's really a new quality. It really comes from the 19th century. If you can imagine, even the—you um, know—seeing a piano concert with, uh, you know, the—you see the pianist's profile, right? You're kind of seeing the side of the piano with the logo of the piano on the side, and then you get the pianist's profile. It's just very romantic. But before Franz Liszt in the 19th century. Uh, if a pianist was playing live, he would play with his back to the audience. Can you imagine? <laughs> he's not even facing the audience. Yeah, so I guess they're seeing what he's doing on the keyboard to an extent. But uh, maybe that's where Miles got it from. You think he used to? He used Could to. Be, uh, he used to turn his, turn back, his back to the audience. But. Yeah, who else did that? Charday, the singer. The, she used to. Oh, she turn looked away from, from the, the audience front too. And the back, though. Yeah, she did. Can we say that? Yeah, it's adult <laughs> music. We can say that. We're uh, yeah. We're, <laughs> I think I think it's night that's 1950s adult music at this point. Madman. Um uh that that's going to we're going to have to say there's going to be something about that said later by the way so keep that in mind. Oh, okay. Men and women in music. Oh boy. Okay, anyway. Coming next we have a um, two okay, La Mandoline by Antoine Fourcaré and this is um he kind of portrays the the mandolin gets gets I, when I think of the mandolin I think of it I like it you know I like the sound it makes but I, when it's kind of like the title of a piece or something like that they're usually trying to evoke the um, the uh, commedia dell'arte you know the uh, Pierrot and all those you know those characters that were in the uh, commedia dell'arte so it's got like a comic kind of character to it so this is like a big change from the uh, the plane this comes uh, out only at the end of the piece where. Yeah. Um, well, you only hear the mandolin at the end, yeah. Yeah, you're like, oh, is this really man? Why do they call it mandolin? And then at the end, 
they give you the mandolin type strumming and so you yeah, they give you a guitar it though it's I, where does it it's not a mandolin no but it's the way yeah. a mandolin you know is sort of strummed in that in that type of piece so yeah i'm not sure one of these pieces okay after that comes la dubreuil which i don't know what it means by forcaret and then uh, Marie's la guitare there are two versions of this um, and this is this is yeah again as the mandolin piece gave you sort of a la mandolin strumming this one is strumming uh, as the guitar would be played in it's kind of a dance like uh, type of piece yeah now i think these were originally for the uh viola da gamba and then like these these guys like re uh so in other words like um for or Marais, i forget which one it is mandolino i think it was this one like guitar they uh orchestrated it for the um um viola da gamba and then these musicians reorchestrated it back to what it would sound like if it was actually a guitar it could be yeah, well, i it. thought this was yeah. interesting because six track six and seven they're the same title and yeah. then the first track six is you know it is, uh, like a guitar dance and then you know the harmonic the harmony and and the um the basic uh shape of the piece in seven is the same except then now we have the the uh gamba here and the bowing on the gamba replaces the strumming from the sort of guitar effect from the beginning and the, the ending is a bit uh different I, I like these two pieces too because uh it it's sort of in a in a major modality but there's a nice change to minor that sort of you know f you know flips you on unexpectedly and then it comes back uh there too so th those two as a set and the contrast of how they're played and what's also in common is kind of interesting yeah and we get the the disc is um the album is divided into three suites and the, the, this, this is something the musicians put together and they're all in the same key so um the next key is um oof, i don't even remember my french here ut majeur which i think might be c ut, ut is c is that yeah. c c ut. major yeah well in uh, in uh the the french way of saying it yeah i'm pretty sure that's c major all right anyway I'm just not remembering. Anyway, the first one is a uh, the first piece we hear is Louis Couperin, not the famous Francois, uh, but Louis. Okay, uh, Pasakaya in ut majeur. Now, Pasakaya, by the way, and a chacon are the same thing. It's a repeating bass line with um, and this a is kind of improvised melody right? on top of it. Yeah, just solo yeah. harpsichord. Solo harpsichord, which is what uh, Couperin wrote for mostly. Um, it, and this, yeah, I liked, again, the sounds of the harpsichord is, on this record is just beautiful. Maybe it's just because of the uh, contrast with the other instruments. But, yeah, I was really just taken in by that. Then there's a nice little prelude by Marie Merlet. And then my favorite three works on the album, all by uh, Fourcoré. Um, the three um, works with titles. The first one is Jupiter, uh, Jupiter, the, uh, I guess, the 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 god i get not the planet right it could be the planet but um this one this is a this was a good example of the whole me melding of french and italian yeah. melodies together it had this really kind of active like rhythmic kind of like melody to it and it really drew me in i like this nice one contrast a lot. in the middle it too it has a, a great sense of movement and mm. if you listen to this one it's the bass lines are prominent and uh the throbo is got some nice bass lines but then also the harpsichord too so the lower register really comes out in these two and the bass accentuates the movement uh in here They're really enjoyable yeah. yeah and then we have la silva 
which uh, also which kind of gives me a feeling of woods. I, I'm guessing that's what Silva is in this case. I think in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's like that's what that means. And La Montigny, which I'm wondering if this is an old way of like saying Montagna or the mountains. This um, one sounds quite but, Italian influenced to me. Yeah. You know, it's got an Italian name, so that could, you know, maybe yeah. he, I think he's probably thinking about that. And then we wind up with the uh, sweet mosaic in Re, which is D, okay, D, D major, I guess. A prelude by Anonymous. Yeah, that guy Anonymous, man, he... Uh, he, he wrote recorded, a lot of he, stuff. He, he yeah. wrote a lot of... And it's all good. It's all really good, yeah. He <laughs> should know. have taken credit for that. Yeah, he should have taken credit for that. Anyway. <laughs> 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 all right. Um then we have um, a Saraban by Robert de Visse, okay? He, um, a, a name that should be better known. I like his music a lot. In fact, L- Rolf Lisselvan, the uh, Baroque guitar player, did a, a whole record of, um, well, not only of his, he, him and another composer. That's just spectacular on the ECM label uh, a few years back. It's called Masquerade. Look it up. Uh, Rolf Lisselvan, Lisselvan uh, Masquerade, uh, or Masquerade, I think it was. But it was a music by uh, de Visse. And someone else, I can't remember who, who the other composer was now. But uh, great to hear that here. Um, and we end with, um, uh, with La Ferrand de la Tranchine, two more works by Fourqueray, and then De Visse twice more, two currants, a courant, two currants, and a piece called La Mascarade, which is what that other album is named after. Yeah. Anyone say anything about these before we conclude this one? Or? Um, I liked all of these. Let me see. No, I liked all of this. Yeah. Um, I mean, the whole album has really great continuity in the mood that it creates. Um, There's some pieces that sound, you know, rather more Italian-influenced, but it's never overwhelming. Um, Let's see. The Sarabande, I really liked the light bowing technique on the um, gamba. That was nice. Mm -hmm. Uh, The uh, La Ferrand, the harmonic changes are really nice. And then, mm. uh, you know, a lot of the music from this period is uh, using, you know, triplet form. But yeah. uh, in this they, piece... They like to go from like, you know, two to three a lot. And it's, it's a nice in effect. In this piece, yeah. the, the triplet form is expanded on and almost in like a, a double time, but not really. And so the rhythmic figures on that are really nice. And let's see, what else did I make a note on? Yeah, the, the final, the Mascarade, the... Uh, this is another one that emphasizes, uh, this is just uh, no harpsichord here, just the uh, gamba and the, the robo, but uh, this emphasizes the lower register uh, more than any of the other pieces. So it adds a lot of weight uh, to that final piece. And uh, yeah, really enjoyable recording overall. Um, like I said, the music really flows. The The approach to it is very relaxed and that, and that allows the, the tonality to come out in that French sense of way. So you really get a feel for the timbre of the instruments. And um, yeah, you, this is a recording you're not going to get tired of listening to. Yeah. It just uh, creates a mood and a, a beauty of sound. And the recording is so clear. As I said, you can hear more than you actually need to with yeah. uh, you know the movement of the fingers on the strings and Bowing things, but it's yeah, not distracting I, I like, in any way. I rather like that, though. Right? Oh yeah, it's, it's, sort of, it, I, it's not that it's you know sometimes you, you that's kind of feel like you're of, right there of being you know too closely mic'd or something. But that's nothing in this album like that. It, the the room noise is appropriate uh, for capturing the space and getting the right natural reverberation of the instruments. Everything is balanced well. It's just super clear. And all the registers are balanced out well. So, yeah, 
yeah, almost perfect in terms of the sound quality from you know my listening. Yeah, the thing that made this appeal, the French style, um, which is really very timbre oriented, and the Italian style, which is more like rhythm oriented or like a kind of like a bounce or sprung rhythm oriented, are both very appealing. And to hear them kind of like um, sort of um, put together here is just what it's really a nice just, meld. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a nice meld, and it really kind of kept me kept me listening and kept my ear interested as well um it the, the album is about an hour long and yeah it's um it's i usually like to listen to baroque music in the morning because it's just kind of it's a good way to start the day it's usually very positive and this is a little slower than your ordinary baroque because of the uh the darkness of the, the viola de gamba uh communicates so i don't know i think this would be a great evening listen yeah, as is, well uh, or late uh, evening you're winding down evening, the day kind of yeah or a yeah. rain the morning that's rainy and you're not motivated yeah. to uh, do much yeah. but listen to music yeah yeah it's slow it'll it's not gonna like make your heart race or anything like that it's just fantastic i like this record a lot yeah highly recommended Fort yeah, for me too. unchained on the arcana label andre lislevand and um and company <laughs> makes you want to get a gamba um, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. We've got enough instruments kind of, around this place here. I can't. It kind of made me want to see yeah. that movie again, To Le Matin du Monde. Yeah. And which, if you haven't seen it, by the way, I recommend everybody that everybody see that movie. It was, it's good. It'll kind of give you a little bit of um, information about uh, the, you know Marin Marais, who in, in fact really did kind of hide under uh, his teacher Saint Colomb's um, you know teaching studio to uh, as he does in the movie to learn his secrets. Because Saint Colomb won't play in public, he's kind of like a—he's dedicated to music. You know, he's one of those guys. Whereas Mary wants to and did play at court for the king. All right, all right, out of the Baroque, that fascinating period, and we go to. This is again—we're going back into like I guess Proust's time here, the uh, mm. Belle Epoque, the fin de siècle, as they say. Um, this is um, another work. Another recording by Adam Walker, British. Everybody on this recording is British, by the way. Um, French. How dare they play French? Music? Well, although, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll we'll get to that soon. <laughs> <laughs> Except for James Bayou, who's South African actually, but he's British as well. I guess he kind of counts as South like, African sounds British. Like a French name, though. Yeah. He's got a French name. Yeah. But French Works for Flute by Adam Walker. Now, you may, if the name Adam Walker rings a bell, we talked about him just last week because he released an album with the Orsini Ensemble, an ensemble that he founded along with other members um, called Belle Epoque. And we thought that was a stay delightful recording, um, kind of light French timbre-oriented, uh, you know, tunes. Like, they were they were pretty light. And I was thinking, you know, I, I generally like to pair recordings you know if it's the same artist and i should have done that with this i guess but thinking about it now i'm kind of glad i didn't because this album which uh features adam walker and james bayou on piano adam walker on flute james bayou on piano is and uh timothy R- R- oh, how do you say this guy's name Ridow, i think Ridow, um, yeah i think so yeah, yeah Ridow, yeah on, vi- on viola on viola Just only on, on the- one piece though yeah. yeah um it's it's a very different animal uh, this is not really light music at all. In fact, it's pretty dark right, and uh, heavy. One of the interesting things about this, the, the featured composers are Camille Saint-Saëns, uh, who's, remember, let's uh, mention his anniversary of his uh, death every time, chance we get when we talk about him, because that'll be over next year. Uh, César Franck um, and Charles-Marie Vidor, which is kind of an interesting... Um, uh, inclusion here, as is yeah, Maurice Duflay. There's yeah. some interesting choices of composers here. When I looked up 
their history, you know, they're, yeah. they're a bit obscure and, uh, that makes it not quite only, interesting, yeah. They all, except for Sansons, have one. Th- although Sansons, I'm not sure sure about. Yeah, maybe they all have something in common. They're all primarily, well, not primarily, but they're all organists. Organists, yeah. This is really interesting. Uh, Franck was very famous as a great organist. Uh, Jean Marie Vidor, of course. Vidor, yeah. The, the, his he, most he was, famous uh, piece Notre is the Dame. symphony. Yeah, no, I think he was. Um, Cathedral um, of Notre Dame organist, yeah. Was he? Yes. I think he was at, um, I don't know, what's the... Oh, God, I can't remember the name now. It was something... I think it was something else. I think it was like one of the other big Paris churches, but I'll could, figure that out later. Could be, yeah. Um, yeah, I got to look that up. But, uh, and, um, yeah, his famous uh, symf- fifth... It, well, he called it a symphony. It's an organ symphony. Uh, symphony number no. five. Is it the last movement of that piece is one of those uh, kind of perpetual motion type things where oh, when you okay. start playing it, everybody in the room gathers around the organ to watch. You know? oh, okay, and it just kind of hypnotizes people. It's a, it's quite a and the last piece is uh, kind of uh, Maurice Duruflet. Duruflet apparently he was unknown in his lifetime, pretty much. And this and uh, this piece, I mean, the instrumentation, yeah, piano, viola, and flute. There's not a lot scored for that uh, there's some unique things about this too but you know once we get to that we can talk about that uh, yeah there's well. the famous uh, Debussy uh, you know work for flute viola and... no that's yeah. flute viola and harp I'm sorry not piano yeah. boy okay which is pretty magical itself yeah so they all, these are all organ composers now organ composers tend to play in church which means they play religious music and there's a kind of heaviness to this music that's I feel is it's actually not unusual for French music, but we tend to associate French music with this kind, these kind of like pastels or this lightness, light, all right? Light and uh, fluffy, yeah. And fluffy, but that's not the case here. There's no. a, there are really dark hues here. This is more. Um, uh, I had a I had a good line about this. I can't remember what it is now. Oh well. What um, I thought, yeah, right from the gate on the first one, uh, since I and this um. There's also a small orchestra version of this piece, uh, like it, you know, the same piece. Yeah, the romance, the, yeah. the Sansons, right? Yeah. And but um, here you can see right away um, what I noticed with after we listened to Walker last week. So I was kind of used to his sound, but uh, he shows you here that he can turn sort of on a dime to change his tone. So depending on whatever is appropriate for the phrase. Uh, he can change from a very light to a dark tone uh, almost instantaneously. And hmm. um, and this piece has a lot of challenging uh, flute parts, but uh, in the runs and the, the trills, uh, he shows really great technique and control, technically, but also over the tone of the flute, which kind of impressed me uh, right from the you know beginning piece here. Yeah, and this um, the album starts lightly enough with this uh, Sans Holland's romance, and then we get into... Really, the major work on the uh, on the disc is uh, the famous César Franck violin sonata, but in this case uh, played by flute for flute and piano, trans, you know, transcribed yeah. for flute and piano. And this was really something to hear. I have to say, um, I liked it. Yeah, I mean, I know this well enough on the violin, you know. So I, I, I mean, I know what it sounds like. I know what's coming next, and so I. I was, you know, listening intently, and um, I, I was especially listening for any parts I thought, you know, that might have some sort of harmonics on the violin that would not be possible 
on the flute and I might be missing something. But I didn't really notice anything like that. I found it, um, it was really enjoyable because it's familiar to me, but yet while I'm listening to it on another instrument, it's quite fresh. And uh, yeah, I, I liked it. Yeah, this is... um. The uh, yeah, the, the boy, I have a lot, to, a lot to say about this. The flute and the violin play more or less in the same range, so the, the, there was no transposition really. I don't believe uh, that needed to be done here. But the again, the timbre of the instruments is very different. Yeah, the violin, world. yeah, it, it's it's it. Hearing it on the flute really just com- completely changes the uh, the uh, the feel of this piece the violin this this is a very passionate work of music and the violin does passion extremely well you can really just attack the yeah, strings the attack and really is put quite different yeah this and the flute it, it's it's hard to convey passion on the flute something else is conveyed a kind of sensuality let's say um it's a wind instrument after all and not only that but there's a lot of um really difficult virtuosic figuration in this work both for the uh well the violin and the piano and for the flute you have to keep in mind this this person has to breathe you know he's making the sound with his breath so it, it really takes something extra to be, pay, be able to put a piece like this across on a flute so it's quite an achievement to to hear this first of, you know it keep that in mind when you're listening um okay this is um so i felt like this wasn't quite idiomatic you know the the flute isn't really idiomatic for this, but it's still very appealing to listen to. Yeah. Uh, the timbre takes some of the drama away, um, but uh, other than that, I, I found you can't it really get that enjoyable. Edge that you know, I often yeah, hear this, the frunk performed with you know with the violin can put on that you right. know sort of um, sharp edged tone in the tension building places. It doesn't come out in the flute, especially you know Walker's tone tone is just always so sort of rounded that um yeah. it's a different impression entirely yeah he he's got this really beautiful sound and um that's not always appropriate for the franc even the violin kind of it's, it's it's sometimes it gets a little rough at times but it's always you know it, it puts across this kind of deep passion and anger at points and um i was kind of because I, I know this work really well and i was just thinking of some of the the contrast, like these outbursts of passion, followed by this sort of almost like mournful quality at um, at something you know cherished and lost, um, and uh, going from one to the other, it, you can make that change easily on the violin, I think. You know, but on the flute, it doesn't really always register as as sharply. Um, I don't want to put it down though; it's it's a really quite a performance, and uh, you should give it a listen, uh, if only to hear this played on the flute. It's really something. Next, we get uh, bookending uh, this work is another uh, Camille Saint-Saëns piece. Saint-Saëns and Franck did not like each other, by the way. At least Saint-Saëns <laughs> didn't like Franck. <laughs> you know, Franck we, liked everybody, I think. He, kinda, this he one just is, got picked uh, on. Saint-Saëns, but uh, by uh, Georges uh, Borel, who was uh, a uh, flautist who became the principal flautist of the New York Symphony. Hmm. And adapted this. Uh, I, I believe you know he made this special arrangement uh, for the flute. Um, yeah. Now this work, by the way, um, Ascanio, Air de Ballet d'Ascanio. Now Ascanio is not a ballet; it's an opera by Saint-Saëns. But uh, French operas at the time had to have a ballet in them because, and this this goes back to that uh, joke you made earlier that I said I was going to say something more about. I, I, don't, I don't even remember the joke now. 
<laughs> I've conveniently forgotten it. But could um, have been that funny then. The re the reason <laughs> the reason the um, that there were ballets in the uh, in the opera was because the uh, the men who were uh, patrons of the opera uh, wanted to see a little leg, you know, so they'd uh, have to get their uh, you know the girls up on stage uh, dancing so they could kind of get uh, a little uh, titillated, shall we say, by the uh, dance number. And a lot of these um, these uh, these um, women were being, or, or the men were their patrons, let's say. <laughs> you know, that's in quotation marks. So uh, you had to have these, you had to have, if you if you listen to like 19th century op- French operas, they'll often have a ballet sequence in them. And it's not a bad thing, really, because uh, the music is great. It's kind of nice to hear a little instrumental music. Um, but that's why they were there. Yeah, not so for any artistic to, reason. You get a little leg. And <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's in contrast to a big leg. Yeah. But I guess that's your own personal preference. But what yeah. you also get here is some very nice double tonguing uh, ah. in the uh, Andantino movement. Uh, yes. Which, uh, you know, this is a, a technique you can hear in um, any kind of wind <laughs> instrument. Speaking uh, of erotic. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, very nicely executed by Walker in the uh, track seven on Dantino. Some fine double tonguing, and when I'm double tonguing, I often like often like to listen to a little leg uh, in my mind, and it helps you know the articulation. So I don't understand what that means. <laughs> well, you're not a you're not a brass or a woodwind player, Mike. So. Anyway, uh, yes, the musicians well. out there who are listening will understand. Yeah. They'll understand. Yeah. Okay. They have this whole. Thing going on behind my back, I'm sure. Anyway, or behind next your leg. work behind work. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not even gonna Don't go build there, on yeah. that because I had a comeback, and no, you're not gonna hear it now. Anyway, <laughs> all right. Next comes a Charles Marie Vidor, who was the organist at Saint Sulpice. That's the church. I kind of looked it up while you were while oh, we were okay. doing that. But and I that's believe- that is in pa- that is in Paris oh. in the in the uh, in the Latin Quarter. Okay, so that's where he was. Um, the organist must. I always think about that. Like the, you know, these these great composers that we know now were just the. You can go to church every week and just hear them you know, improvising on that organ. It must have been amazing. You know, I I do like that tradition a lot. Jamming anyway, this for is God, you can't get jamming for God. Well, that's I think that's where great musicians are made. So many. This yeah. is the case in America too. Like a lot of the great uh, American singers, especially Black American singers, came from the church. Oh yeah. You know they. You know you're singing for God. You're uh, I don't know. Just take some, pull something out of you, and um, I think that has to continue. <laughs> you know. I don't think you learn to sing like that at a conservatory or like or even playing the organ like these guys did. Well, you do, but I mean, you're also, you know, kind of, you know, playing in church as well. Um, yeah, there's something about that that's worth worth uh, worth uh, writing a thesis on, I think. Anyway, this is a sweet opus 34 in C minor for flute and piano, and it was dedicated to the great flautist Paul Taffanel, and that's really what drew Adam Walker to it. Um, for movement work, um, again, this starts on a really odd sounding chord. It really kind of took me aback for a minute. I was like, whoa, what was that? <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I kind of want to get at the old keyboard and try to figure it out, but I didn't do that. And it, it goes from there. It's not a, it's, it's by no means an avant-garde work or any, or even off-putting, but it is kind of he- like, like, as you would expect from an organist, it is kind of heavy and dark. It's got like this real kind of, you know, gravitational pull to it, you know, it's, um, Although there's a, there's a lot of beautiful figuration in some of the other movements, the first movement you know kind of starts out a little um, a little bit darker. The scherzo lightens the mood a bit, 
And then we have a romance, the third movement, and uh, ends with a... Uh, oh, this is... Okay, I'm thinking, I'm confusing this with the other one. Okay. Um, yeah, with a finale, which is pretty vivace and sort of um, romantic in mood, shall we say. It's very dramatic. Again, not something I, I expected from... Um, a flute, a work for flute and piano, but especially a French work for flute and piano, but um, pretty interesting. This work, um, it okay, I, it didn't make a big first impression, but I think there's a lot there. I think it requires repeated listening to really get. All right, it didn't really stick it the first takes time. It a journey, uh, yeah. The movement, so yeah, okay. And then we end with um, another organist, Maurice Duruflet. Now, Duruflet, if you know him at all. Um, unless you're like really into him, he he's known for his requiem, and his um, requiem is often paired with um, Faure's very famous requiem on recordings. This is a work called Prelude Recitatif et Varias. Uh, I'm saying this wrong. God, Prelude Recitatif et Variation uh, for flute, viola, and piano. So we get the viola in here. Now the viola is the uh, kind of middle instrument between the violin and the lower cello, and it's got a darker tone to it. You know, really uh, serving uh, the, the tone of this entire album really well. It's a really appealing instrument to listen to, and I really feel like it uh, makes this this uh, yeah. particular piece work. You know, it's just a new color, and um, uh, I just I like hearing it. Recently, there have been more uh, solo works for the viola, and I think that's a good thing. Apparently, um, uh, Duflet was little known during his own lifetime, but mm -hmm. he's gotten more admirers in recent years, and. Of course, I, I don't know nothing about this composer, so I looked up, uh, I was look, investigating, and then I found uh, comments by musicians uh, on the score for this. So I thought, oh, this is interesting. Rather than looking at, uh, you know, comments on recordings of the piece, uh, you know, so, you know, flautists and other players who have attempted to perform this and uh so those comments were really interesting um because uh this is actually scored in f sharp major so which is a mm. you know it's a key with a lot of yeah. sharps that are there and then it has a lot and of it, accidentals so apparently for wind instruments this is odd isn't it because yeah. they have to you know but apparently uh it makes it really hard to like you know read especially sight read in prepare. So you're going to need a lot of extra time uh, to, you know, you don't, you don't just pull this out and say, let's read through this. Uh, it's going to be uh, a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, a first uh, hurdle uh, to the piece. Uh, that's what I gauged from reading a, a few uh, performer reviews. But uh, I, what I liked about this piece is um, it, um, it the three movements are really... Uh, you know, dependent on each other, and and it never resolves until the end in terms of sort of where it's going um, emotionally. It starts with a really dreamy piano intro, and um, when you go through each movement, um, the uh, it like the prelude builds tension, uh, but at the end of the prelude, that's just sort of uh, suspended. So you know, each movement of the first and second movements do not sort of come to any sort of um, temporary climax. They they depend on what comes next in the next movement. And uh, you, you don't get that final 
uh, sort of resolution of all the things that are introduced until the final movement. So I, th I thought that was kind of interesting about the uh, the whole piece. You, you you can't isolate the first two movements because they sort of, and, and especially the second and third um, on the recording, they, they go into each other right away. There's almost no gap there. Um, so it's, it's sort of a, it could almost be in one movement, uh, really how it was put together. Right. These three, these three movement kind of continuous works like this, and they're titled after the, um, you know, their, um, sort of sections, the, the actual title of the work is the title of the sections, which seems to have been started by uh, Cesar Franck. He did a lot of these types of works, or I shouldn't say a lot, maybe two or three of these works for piano solo. And I think um, Maurice Duruflet is taking this from him. This was nice to hear, because um, I don't know much of Duruflet's music. I know the Requiem, and it just doesn't get recorded enough. Um, yeah, very, very enjoyable. And again, I enjoyed hearing the viola on this. So this album is... Um, it's an interesting companion to the uh, Belle Epoque album we heard last week, and who, which Adam Walker also plays on. But this is sort of its uh, sort of uh, kind of more serious brother, let's say, or you know something like that. It's more, it's more brooding, uh, darker side. Um, yeah, they they kind of make a good contrast to each other. Anyway, it's recommended. The flute playing on this is really excellent. Um, oh, yeah. he, this guy gets a great tone. Uh, the program is really interesting and original. Okay, so this isn't music we hear all the time. I will value this CD as it goes into my collection because I have the CD of this and the Belle Epoque. Um, this, by the way, is a CD and the Belle Epoque album from last week is a super audio CD. I kind of wish they had Ooh. made both of them super audio CDs, but they didn't. So both on the same label, Chandos. Speaking yeah. of Chandos, yeah. Nice for me, uh, a dive into the deeper flute repertoire that I'm not going to get exposed to. You know, yeah. just casually. So, um, yeah, enjoyable. Yeah. I tend to like like flute music, flute and harp music, especially especially if it's written by French composers. I don't know. They they do the harp really well too. French composers yeah. they they compose for the flute and the harp exceptionally a French, well. A French dip very idiomatic for me. A French yeah. a would you French call that? Is that what you would call that? A French well, uh, for me, it just idiomatically a dip into yeah. French into the French musical pool. Yeah, uh, uh, maybe with flute. I don't know. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay. Speaking of the Chandos label, we have another recording from them, and this one is a, a disc of French songs called Cher Nuit by Louise Alder, soprano, and Joseph Middleton, piano. I have to say, Joseph Middleton is getting a lot of work these days. He's He seems to be appearing on almost every other record that I hear as an accompanist to uh, various singers. Now, the, the, uh, the both of them are British, and Louise Alder came to my attention because um, she appeared in um, John Elliott Gardner's um, semi-staged uh, performance of Handel's opera Semele, and she was uh, the lead character, Semele, who gets seduced by the Greek god Zeus, and that's what the entire act two is about, is about uh, Semele and... Um, Zeus getting it on um, <laughs> and uh, wow. the way that's portrayed in Baroque uh, music isn't quite as sexy as you would think although she does who played she, Zeus in that I don't remember the guy's name okay I'll have to look it up anyway I can tell you later um, <laughs> anyway and, and and she she has fantastic strange presence and a really great uh, dramatic soprano voice. She's also featured on a recording that came out last year called "Lines Written During a Sleepless Night," uh, which also was was suited her exceptionally well. And I was really interested to hear this because uh, I love French songs and um, 
especially early 20th century French songs, you know, Belle Epoque and after the modernist era. Um, and uh, she actually starts out with one of my favorite um, sets of French songs ever, Maurice Ravel's Scheherazade. And uh, I have to say, this didn't start well for me. Let me explain. Okay. Now, Scheherazade is a set of three works, um, and it was originally for violin, no, it's violin, geez, for soprano and orchestra. Okay, so, and uh, if you know anything about Ravel, he was one of the great orchestrators of all time. And the orchestration in this work is absolutely magical, as are the melodies that the soprano sings. Now, and the great recording of this work is the Regine Crespin uh, recording uh, from the, I guess, the 60s now. It was a long time ago. So it's kind of, in, shall we say, old sound. Now, this particular recording is for uh, soprano and piano. So they've taken the, uh, the magical orchestration away. Um, but the harmony is still there, and Ravel's harmonies are equally magical. But... Um, I didn't feel that uh, this particular performance was as sensitive or mysterious as other performances or as this work needs to be. Um, um, it's better with an orchestra. Um, the, her voice, um, Louise Aldous, it's a beautiful voice and it's got some nice shades and it's got this kind of like dark kind of bottom to it. Um, which which is appealing, but doesn't work in this music. I mean, this I think this um, the the texts are about the the um, this fantasy of um, just the the Arabian Nights stories, and it it kind of sounds like almost naive the um, the narration. But uh, she doesn't have a naive voice. Um, this is a Louise Alders' voice is someone who who knows something about life. Okay, and uh, I don't think that really works in these particular songs because I think it has to be a more youthful voice than we get here. Um, yeah, the and the pacing of this is off. Um, I thought the uh, the first movement Ozzy was played way too f a little too fast, and that the piano playing here I don't know it was too far forward or just lacked in subtlety. Okay, there are lots of magical moments in these scores that just don't register, and I was kind of unhappy about this. Um, if you want to hear this, by the way, again this is another hear this for violin and oh, I keep saying violin, hear this for soprano and orchestra. Okay, but if you want to hear like a comparison, I would recommend uh, uh, Marianne Krebassa and Fazel Sai. Um, Marianne Krebassa, the French soprano, and Fazel Sai, Turkish pianist, um, playing this on uh, Krebassa's album Secrets, which came out about uh, three or four years ago. They do a really nice performance of this, although I feel like it would have been better if it was with an orchestra. Uh, that that was kind of more of what I was looking for, and I preferred that to this. Um Okay, Middleton, okay, the, the pianist characterizes well, but he's, he's kind of heavy-handed in this, and this requires a really light touch. Now, that's not to say Middleton is a heavy-handed pianist. He's got that beautiful light touch in other works on this disc. But I just felt like um, the magic in the score wasn't really realized in this performance. Um, but please, I don't want to pan this album yet. There's good stuff to come, and that comes in the next uh, set of works. You want to say anything, by the way, about uh, Scheherazade? I'll hold my comments to the till we get to the okay. end. Yeah. Okay. Now the Messiaen is uh, actually a lot better. Okay. These are a little. These are more modern works from the mid twentieth century. Uh, Trois mélodies. Okay. Uh, the piano is more understated here, and that's as it should be. And um, hearing Louise Alder sing about why the beauty of nature holds no pleasure suits her dark vocal tone well in the song Pourquoi, okay? So she's got that questioning 
tone here. And this works well for her. This is a good song. I think she characterizes this very well. So we're back on track. Um, um, okay. In the song La Fiancée, her tone actually lightens a bit too, which was nice to hear. Um, um, okay. And I, th I think uh, th I actually wrote a note here that says um, that I, I feel like her voice is lighter because maybe the, uh, the harmony is playing tricks on me, like the way it's actually harmonized. Okay, she does um, some early Debussy songs. Um, I can I can tell you what they are actually. Apparition en Sordine, which is from a Paul Verlaine poem, and La Romance d'Ariel, and uh, I enjoyed these. She's got some fantastic top notes. They're really brilliant and ringing. I liked that a lot. I think that works really well for these early Debussy. And uh, Middleton has the right tone here. Excellent. I like the Debussy here. Okay, now we get to the. Um, the uh, center part, the uh, central works on the program, and uh, they're both women composers. Uh, Pauline Viardot, who's uh, better known as a singer, and she wrote, she, she was also a bit of a composer. She wrote a handful of works. There aren't that many, but uh, her, um, she, was a, she was a really um, magnetic personality in the 19th century and drew a lot of, uh, especially men to her, and they, a lot of men wrote, um, um, arias for her to sing um and uh she was um sort of revived by a cecilia bartoli in 1996 and uh since then i always have associated her with cecilia bartoli but other sopranos have since been picking up her songs now viardo she lived in france but she was actually of spanish descent um her song hi luli which is kind of a sound okay and is a bit of an earworm i was almost getting another earworm there okay from this <laughs> song it's got this rocking motion that's very um memorable in the chorus after getting rid of that last earworm with the uh, the cricket there from a few weeks back and Josquin, okay um so viardot's song hi luli you might want to hear this it's uh it's worth knowing um it's got a rocking motion in the chorus that's really catchy and um these are excellently performed, but I said here her okay, her darkish tone fits well here. Um I think though okay, in the variations uh in the middle, the middle work. Okay, Le More Captif and oh sorry, I'm looking at the wrong thing. Okay, Le Du Rose and uh Havanese. These are the other two Viardot pieces. In the Havanese, the very last piece, which is a very Spanish work, it kinda has that 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 sort of bolero, not bolero, what am I thinking of? The Havanese rhythm, it's Havanese. Uh, she could have been a lot more, a lot flirtier and more playful in this. I feel like she couldn't really just let go, okay? They would have been great. But the, again, the, the, the singing is great, okay? The characterization is a little, again, heavy. Okay, Cecile Chaminade is the other... Uh, woman composer here, and we've been hearing a lot of her music in the last few years. Um, it seems that um, performers have picked up on her music a lot, and uh, it's quite good. I, I've before all of this started happening, I had only known like a a big chamber work by her. So I, I think it was a quintet or a trio that I really liked, and so I'm kind of glad to be hearing more of her music. I've never heard any of her songs until now, and they are very nice. In fact, um, in these, um, uh. Louise Older is really good in these. Um, she's more playful in the bouncing rhythm of L'Amour Captif. Um, and, um, but, you know, I was thinking, do you remember um, a few weeks ago, and that's a, maybe more than a month ago, we talked about uh, Jodie DeVoe, the, um, who recorded an Offenbach recording like last year and then did um, English songs this year. She's got this really high voice and this really kind of 
great tone for this kind of music. And I kept thinking, boy, I'd like to hear her sing this. I bet she'd really make it, you know, flirtatious in a in a really appealing way. Okay, I would have. I was. I'd like to hear Jodie Devos uh, sing. Um, uh, Chaminade and Pauline Viardot. I think that'd be fantastic. Again, okay, so I think, uh, again, I think uh, Louise Alder here is a bit, um, you know, she's very good again, but she's a bit, um, you know, a, li- a little, a little heavy. Okay, next, rounding up the program, we, we the sprint toward the end, Alfred Bachelet's Cher Nuit, this is the title track, uh, is deeply romantic, a good fit for Alder's, you know, light but you know a little bottom heavy voice okay this this really is a good uh track to have as the title track i think it it suits her exceptionally well and she should really make this part of her repertoire her her permanent repertoire okay then we come to francis francis poulenc uh chemin d'amour very famous popular song of the era um Alder has a and Louise Alder has a good uh, pop sensibility. I think uh, she captured the period style well. I think she's probably listened to her um, um, Edith Piaf and uh, things like that. Okay, this this fits comfortably. It's not terribly um, French, you know. It it doesn't doesn't have that French sort of um, you know. She doesn't have that French quality really in her voice for this. But the thing is, the song itself is so idiomatically French that you almost can't <laughs> you know, not fall into sounding like that. Okay, Poulenc's three metamorphoses are more arty, and uh, they sound good here. I like them a lot. Next, we come to one of my favorite uh, French composers, Eric Satie, because he's uh, a bit of a goofball, all right? And uh, boy, does he... Um, he writes in a pop vein here. He liked uh, the dance hall a lot, and these are two songs that suit the dance hall well, especially in their erotically charged lyrics, shall we say. He didn't write the lyrics. He kind of took them from somewhere else. Okay, um... The first piece is La Diva de l'Empire. The Empire is probably a nightclub or a dance hall, and this is the uh, the the La Diva would be the um, the main attract the woman who is the main attraction, and the song is about how she entertains the audience. Um, it's it's playful, um, all, and Louise Alder captures this quality really well, even with the darker tinges of her voice. I mean, this works really well. Um, this, there's kind of an almost whisper when she sings the words très très excitant, like she's kind of like doesn't want to, you know, let go. I thought I think it was effective. Um, uh, then comes the famous Je te veux. This is like people know this mostly as a piano piece, um, but here we have the the highly uh, sexually charged words where the lover is telling his um, this woman to be his and they'll go and lay down somewhere, shall we say. Um, uh, very naughty lyrics. Uh, this is fairly effective, but this piece, was, it was really strange. As the uh, narrative continued, as this man singing the song, or I guess it could be a woman too, and, you know, singing to a man or to, to another woman in this case, um... It's she's the tempo they did like a, their interpretation they slowed down the tempo as the song went on and I didn't really like that I kind of wish it could have stayed at the normal waltz rhythm well it's always in a waltz rhythm but it just slows down I feel like it loses momentum sort of like a bike falling over you know <laughs> I kind of I didn't like that quality about it okay um, the and she um, she as her excitement mounts I think she likes to portray that with a more hushed voice but this got kind of um let's see uh it drew attention to the uh 
to the, you know, it, it, with the tempo slowing and the voice growing more and more hushed, I was kind of like, oh, this is just too much. So it's an interesting interpretation, I guess. Interesting would be the nice way to say it. It wasn't bad. I mean, I just, I just would have rather heard it a little straighter. Okay, the last song, um, lacks. It's kind of a bad song to go out on. It lacks the lightness that the texture demands. Um, Walter's voice. It's a great voice. It's a very good dramatic voice. It doesn't have much sunshine in it, and I feel like this song needed some sunshine. Okay, well, so Older's voice is made for drama. I have no problem with this singer at all. She's absolutely fantastic, and she was great in Handel, but I just didn't think this program suited her very well. Um, also, in the flirtier numbers, I feel like this singer, Lee's Older, she needs to let go a bit, okay? Just um, let it all hang out. And anyway, that's what I thought. So I thought this was, um, give it a listen. It's, it's, it's worth a listen. Um, I think I'm going to look elsewhere for like, um, a lot of these, um, performances of a lot of these songs. So that's what I've got. What do you think, Russ? Are you there? Yeah, this was work for me. Um, yeah. you know, go, bridging from last week to this week, uh, with sort of the French, <clears throat> I know, conception of timbre as the center and you know listening for uh the variations in instrumental music um right. I'm, and i'm not a big fan of uh soprano voice uh i i was completely lost for finding a tonal beauty in this recording because i her voice just completely overpowers the music for me in most of the numbers mm-hmm. um and, and so it's just too much uh, compared to listening to instrumental music from my listening point. And, and again, mm-hmm. that's just my reference because I'm not a, a big fan of listening to uh, solo, especially soprano voice. Uh, the, the numbers that uh, I enjoyed more, that I show, I thought showed more restraint and I could get some subtleties in the voice, the uh, Messiaen, uh, the first one, is it? The Messiaen, uh, right? The um... Messiaen, the Pourquoi? Pourquoi? The, yeah, she was actually exceptionally one, good in that I one. I like yeah. that one a lot. Mm. Uh, in uh, Debussy, uh, the La Romance de Daria. Yeah, Ariel. Uh, yeah. That one I could uh, find some things I liked, and the and then in the I enjoyed uh, of of all like as a set the Polan, mm-hmm. um the um, Metamorphosis, oh, like huh? and the Metamorphosis, both of those. I yeah. I could find some, you know, subtleties, and then the uh, Satie, uh, Satie. I like that one. But that was those. Honestly, which, which one? The both of them, or? Um, yeah, and the Jete uh, Yeah, the second to last on the on the album. I like that better than the the previous track. So those are the ones I thought like um, I could. I could get into her voice and the contrasts in it, but most of the other ones, I just. You know the piano was there. The piano playing is fine, but the the voice I just thought is for me uh, not really. Uh, I couldn't delve into sort of more uh, subtleties of contrast in her voice because she was just uh, focused on you know reaching that sort of you know soprano climax in in the mm. pieces and I, I couldn't pick up on subtleties so much uh, so this one was not not for me in the French realm so much yeah 
I sort of thought like like the uh, Lisa Davidson Davidson album that we reviewed a, f- a few weeks ago. Um, it's that that's a spectacularly great voice, but I felt like the um, the repertoire wasn't really a match to it. And I think that's the case here. I think this is an excellent voice, but uh, again, this is a, I, I'm willing to bet that she sang this repertoire because she probably loves it. I mean, a lot of us right. do. I certainly do. But uh, it's it's not really idiomatic it's only for you though um if you don't like the soprano voice i still think that you would be seduced by a soprano and orchestra a well-sung soprano and orchestra version of scheherazade by maurice ravel because it's absolute magic it's just really i submit my heart my wooden hardened heart to be seduced by such voice yeah, well, okay, we'll have to get one. Give me that Send recording. one your way one Let's day. See if can melt it would have to be Regine Crespin, but that's it's very old. It's an old recording. Yeah, we'll have to see. see if it can it's melt, a great performance, though. Melt this hardened heart. Oh, th- that absolutely would, because uh, Ravel makes some orchestral magic in that yeah. work. Yeah, there's there's one exceptionally like magical bit where because where he he suddenly shifts the scene from. Um, sort of um the arabian countries to china and then she says i would like to see china and it, it it's it's like this orchestra sleight of hand where this kind of like the music suddenly changes to this sort of like um sort of one of those angular kind of chinese like folk song melodies it's it's just fantastic the way it just kind of comes out of no out of mm. Nothing. Uh, that that one moment really just always gets me every time. But there's a lot of there are a lot of things like that in in these works, and you didn't really hear them on this recording. I felt it just didn't come across. All right. Yeah. Well, I remain open minded to hmm. have my heart melted. Uh, okay, we will that do that voice. in the future. Hopefully, with a newer singer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know. Last week, I was. Uh, Persuaded by the dulcet baritone yeah, voice, he was good. Uh, that was good. So Ludovic Tessier, yeah, uh, yeah, we liked him. I, he can sing for me all day. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I need an alto. I don't know. Maybe I just have this. Maybe there's something wrong with my ears for the soprano range or something. I don't know. Or a mezzo. You might like a mezzo. Mezzo, like a Cecilia yeah, Bartoli. Could work too. Yeah. yeah, altos are kind of interesting because they, they have these really darker tones to their voice. Yeah, like they're almost getting into the men's kind of vocal range, and it, it's. Yeah, in a woman's voice, it sounds it's this. There's a kind of odd sort of eeriness to it. Um, yeah, really appealing. Mahler set that a lot. Um, the, the the alto voice kind of is is used in Mahler's music a lot. Okay, and there we go for our French classical. It's it's all French for you this week. Well, and you know, on like, we go. Um, knowing that you were gonna do the you were gonna French us on this. Yeah. So, um, I thought you know. I've been looking over the new jazz releases uh, for a while, and wouldn't you know there are there are quite a few French things in there, um, and there were a couple that, you know, sort of, uh, gained my interest, but I I hadn't picked them right at the time. But then uh, I said, okay, if we're going to do French, let's look at some French jazz too, and uh, but on further examination, I couldn't pick up absolutely three that I wanted to pick. So you're going to get two out of three. So I'm going to break the French theme just to pick one other one. But you're going to get two anyway. And um, we're going to start out with uh, a French saxophonist who's Hmm. uh, not so well known outside of France, but he may well become known because of this project. And that is uh, Pierrick Pedron, uh, who I 
understand is quite well known inside of France. And his uh, new album called uh, 5050, The New York Sessions. This is on uh, Gazebo uh, label. And uh, the title has uh, several uh, connotations in meaning. Um, apparently, he uh, turned uh, 50 years old. I guess it'll be 51 uh, now, uh, but at the Ooh, time like, of the recording, he was 50. So that's one like meaning. Us. Yeah, same uh, same uh, age range. See, as, if he was a rock musician, he'd already be retired. He'd be retired. Yeah, that's right. Well, maybe not. Unless well, he, maybe not. He joined the Ringo Starr Band. Not. He could have another 30 years. Um, yeah. But uh, the other meaning is that um, this is uh, the first installment in a two-part project. Uh, this project is acoustic and uh, recorded with some uh, top-listed uh, American players. And the second part of the project will um, be in uh, recorded in France with French musicians in an electric setting. I'm not sure. I, I'm not so familiar with his uh, previous recordings, uh, what he's done, but he's going to uh, do that with maybe a, a more um, electronic uh, instrumentation uh, or something. I'd be interested like to hear what that sounds like after yeah. hearing this, actually. And uh, so uh, I'm not so familiar with uh, his uh, previous work. And then when I looked uh, at you know the track listing. I noticed something very curious about the tracks, uh, and he is a Frenchman and playing uh, American jazz. But uh, we've got uh, some titles uh, that are very uh, evocative of Japanese things. So yeah, I, I, wondered, I noticed. Well, of course, being that this is where we live, yeah, I noticed that here. myself. He's got this. The French um, really do have this real love yeah. of Japan, and they really uh, yeah. they do a deep dive. Too, and it seems like he That's may right. be one of them. He kind of, yeah, there are um, a lot of Japanese themed works on this. So, digging a little bit deeper, that uh, apparently he has been regularly performing and recording in Japan, uh, and he is invited by the uh, pianist uh, Yutaka Shiina, and who has mm -hmm. uh, played a lot with uh, Elvin Jones and uh, Jazz Machine. So, I guess that's his connection. Um, so, uh, is kind of interesting. The group that he has here on the 50-50 sessions is uh, pianist Sullivan Fortner, uh, who uh, I knew formerly as a pianist in the Roy Hargrove band, uh, bassist Larry uh, Grenadier, and uh, drummer uh, Marcus Gilmore. And so uh, the second uh, release of the 50-50 will be titled the uh, Paris Sessions, and it's supposed to come out in the fall of this year. So uh, we'll see what that's going to be like. So what we've got here is uh, nine originals. It's all originals, uh, but mm. four were composed in collaboration with uh, Laurent uh, Corthalia. Uh, and I'm not familiar with him, but apparently a co-composer on these. So, uh, yeah, not having any... Uh, preconceived notions I jumped right into this uh, with Pedron and the first track is uh, called Bullet T and you're off to the races right away with some really uh, fast swinging uh, post bop uh, some of the reviews I've, so it's a neo bop I'm not sure what neo bop means but uh, you know in the modern post bop idiom this fits right in um, 
What do you get here? So neo neo bop, I guess, would be a kind of bop that they just kind of came up with right there. You know, I guess <laughs> just give I it mean, a name. It, there's a longer tradition than that. Um, what there's some curiosities in in the way they do this to me, but um, uh, so from the start, you know, you're going to get in with uh, this tune. You're really off on uh, a fast pace. When you get a sax and piano doubling on this very angular melody and drum fills between the phrases. Uh, starts out with a piano solo uh, with a lot of tension building dissonance. And uh, what's interesting here, which comes up a lot through the tunes on this album, when the sax comes in for a solo, the piano completely drops out. Uh, so Padron doesn't seem to want or need a lot of harmonic uh, sort of input behind his uh, soloing. And then you'll get a taste right from the first tune of his sound. Uh, he has a rather edgy sound. Um, he can, he has really good technique. He can play a lot of fast lines, um, but he also likes to do some tonal work. So he's got some screeches uh, outside playing. Um, and so he, you know, he likes to, uh, you know, go outside of the regular uh, chord change conventions. The piano comes back in and brings it back a little bit mellow with the progressions, and uh, there's some, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, drum work underneath that, and the sax comes back with the theme. And what you'll notice uh, once you start listening to this right from the first track is the recording technique on this album is a little bit unusual uh, for modern recordings. It sort of goes back to when... Um, stereo was first invented uh the piano is panned hard left uh it's all in the left channel you won't yeah, hear any that, from that, that always drives me crazy yeah. it kind of feels like it's stuffed into a closet exactly <laughs> and and the drums are all on the right um and you know so this is sort of like early stereo recordings um i don't know what to say about it really other than you know the the opposite can be very bad too like when if your drummer is in the middle of the stage and his symbols you know obviously occupy a certain space that should be represented but when they're panned excessively so that when you listen to the and that you know the drums seem to occupy you know like uh 10 meter radius <laughs> of, mm. you know you would have a, a drummer with like unnaturally long arms that's sort of yeah. unrealistic too right here is sort of, of yeah, it always kind of drives me crazy too when they record pianos like that, where yeah, uh, so you'll, somebody will play a scale from like you know the low bass all the way into the high end yeah. of the piano, or so you've got a and, and you'll hear keyboard. it go from speaker to speaker like it's a Pink Floyd album. Mm. <laughs> That's always really it is odd. the opposite. So the, you know, this is sort of like 1956 when you know piano was, or stereo was first figured out and the you know the instruments are really panned so i'm not really sure why that happened um but that's what you've got here um this uh second tune is called uh be ready so sort of medio oh, i want to say something more about yeah. that um the the timbre the uh the first piece um bullet t right yeah it, 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 the, the title is interesting it's uh, this might even be a reference to the uh bullet train and in, in japan as well it, it um, possibly could really... be yeah, but I liked to. It had these really high speed solos that kind of, um, you know, the thing I noticed about every solo, they all stopped like on a dime. Like you thought they were just going to keep going, then all of a sudden, like they would just some the, the soloist right. would just jam on the brakes, and the next guy would take over. And I think that's part of the theme of this piece. I was kind of curious about that. I thought, it, you know, they had figured out that they were going to end their solos that way. Could it be like. Uh, 
sort yeah. of provocative of his experience riding on the bullet train here or something. Yeah. Yeah, I'm guessing that. I don't really know that that's true, but yeah, not sure. Okay. I I hadn't thought of that myself, but hmm. um, yeah. So anyway, the next track is uh, "Be Ready." It's a medium tempo tune. Uh, this one sometimes the melody uh, is played uh, in unison with uh, piano and sax, and then sometimes the sax takes it alone. We start with a piano solo, sax. Uh, again, uh, the piano largely drops out under the sax solo, and then comes back. You know, for some harmonic support, Padron mixes a lot of fast phrases with uh, uh, some pitch bending. Uh, he likes to work sort of uh, microtonal things. He's got some trills, and then he, he can work with uh, tonal changes to build tension, and that keeps up pretty much to the end of the tune. Uh, keeps the intensity on. Then we get into uh, the first, uh, unless, as I missed it, the bullet T would be bullet train. Uh, number three, uh, Sakura, uh, in Japanese meaning cherry blossoms. Right. Uh, this has a really soft, sparse, long piano opening in a free time. And then after a pause, uh, Padron comes in with the uh, ballad melody. Uh, here you get introduced to a, a more tender side of his uh, playing. Um, but not too tender. He has a sort of uh, cannonball adderly type of bite and articulation, but the tone is more sort of um, peppery, as in art peppery, uh, with an edge to it. Uh, so it's an it's an interesting uh, sort of approach that he takes to this ballad. We get a nice relaxed bass solo, and then uh, Padron comes back in with the melody and some more improvisations. This is a nice ballad. Uh, treatment. I assume he's trying to evoke the cherry blossoms uh, in Japan, and I enjoyed this one. Number four is a track called Boom, and this is an up-tempo <laughs> swing. Uh, it's kind of, uh, well, all of his all of his original compositions, I'll get to this at the end, but they're, they're rather kind of disjointed so that, you know, the melody of the tune is disjointed, syncopated melody uh, that's accented by the piano. Um, the piano takes the first solo. The, the sax returns uh, with the melody and then into a solo. There's a little bouncy bass solo and then the theme comes back uh, to the end. Uh, the next track, Starts out a little differently. Uh, number five, uh, Trevise. Uh, it's got like a music box kind of piano opening. You know, that sort of chimey quality when you open a wound up box. Um, yeah, that struck me right away. I thought of the African thumb piano. The right. I think it's called the Mabira. It kind of gave me that because yeah. the, the rhythms are a little off to the way they play. Like as, you know, like yeah, there are these it, two separate rhythms at the same time. Something very different. Um, it's got some nice... Uh, high bass tones and cymbals in here. Then the, and then after that intro, it changes. The sax comes in on a slow swing that sets in on the ballad. Um, there's a... In here, when the sax comes in, there's a lot of interesting piano happening and uh, through the tune. And then it sort of closes out with that chimey thing again. And then it's sort of like the music blocks just like closes up and, and the tune is over. This is an interesting arrangement. Um, 
Yeah, you know? I enjoyed this. I this is one of the the tunes I enjoyed most on the album. I was kind of curious about the title Trevise. I figured it had some kind of. Now I'm not sure what it means. There is a an area in the Veneto region of Italy called Treviso, but the word Trevise in French means like radicchio lettuce, and I'm kind of <laughs> wondering if that's what they mean here. <laughs> I don't really know what the meaning of this word is in this case. I'm not sure. Is it a place or is it does it mean radicchio? What does it mean? I'm I don't sure. know. Yeah, it's an interesting. Or is uh, it some slang word? I don't know. Arrangement mm. to it, uh, kind of cool approach that's sandwiched uh, uh, the main part of the tune. Uh, then we've got also, uh, six. Yeah, I've uh, also got a meaning. I just want to say I've also got a meaning here. It says uh, an, uh, a Trevise is an intelligent person who thinks outside the box, and that could really work oh, if yeah. that's really true. I've never heard of this word before, but uh, I use this mm. way. Hmm. But uh, that just came up in the Urban Dictionary. I can't wow. comment on that too much. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. Mm, yeah. Yeah, kind of obscure, but, um, you know. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll know. ask him one day. Write <laughs> right to us, let us know. Yeah, write right to us, let will. us know if anybody I wants to tell will me. because the next tune is called Unknown 2. So maybe oh, Trevis is Unknown 1. Yeah. Uh, but this one is uh, a little more standard. We've got a fast swing with a walking bass. Uh, the, mel- the melody phrases, there's a lot of gaps in here, so you sort of leaves you wondering with a sense of mystery um and also the structure of the um the solo is uh the the solos the piano and sax alternate a few a few solos and then they have some interviews together it's kind of a loose construction and um when we uh move on from that uh, the uh next part with uh uh fortner on uh, piano it's uh, a little bit uh, kind of uh, complex harmonic lines that come in here. And then we get back to the melody. Um, then again, things go free. And uh, there's kind of a descending pattern that's repeated at the end into some really impressionistic piano chords. Uh, so I guess that's what the unknown part is. I'm not sure. Um, track seven, Back to Japan. Uh, actually, t- until the end, we're going to be Japanese influenced here. Yeah. We've got origami, the Japanese uh, paper folding thing. This is uh, starts out with a rubato opening over kind of ascending piano runs, and then an even beat ballad forms out of that. Uh, you get a melody that's kind of almost there, <laughs> but uh, not quite. You won't remember it. Um, and some loose and dark harmonies come over like a freed up drum and bass backing. And finally, uh, I actually things... wrote that this was very angular and abstract. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that we're are. on the same page with that one. Okay. Um, at the end, things congeal, uh, like, uh, kind of a, I don't know, a boiled broth to the mm. end <laughs> back with the melody. Um, this is kind of interesting one. Maybe he imagined things taking shape from, uh, a sheet yeah. of, uh, unconstructed paper then number eight uh we've got uh, mr takagi uh, a japanese surname this is a kind of playful chasing up tempo melody the bass keeps steady and but the drums kind of keep things loose uh the piano here sounds more conventional than on a lot of other tracks it's kind of more in the regular post-bop vein uh we get a nice little bass spot and uh pedron really whips up on his solo with some speedy lines and more bends. And then uh, the album closes out with uh, track nine, uh, Mizue, 
which uh, could be a woman's name, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, we've got uh, sax and bass starting out this ballad. And here, uh, Pedron plays it really kind of melancholy and spa- sparsely. Um, the piano and bass sneak in, and it sort of settles into a slow 6-8 tempo, but there's a pulse, uh, a nice restrained sax solo, a bass solo with... Uh, some delicate cymbals and piano chords behind it. Uh, the sax comes back with more intensity, and it sounds like he's keeps searching for something uh, right up uh, till the end. Maybe he's looking for uh, Mizue, wherever she is, uh, and that uh, closes out uh, the album. Yeah. So I thought I just want to mention. I thought yeah, um, yeah Mizue seems a bit. Uh... It's it, it, like a, a pensive type, but mm-hmm. Mr. Takagi, I, I was listening to this piece thinking of the title, and uh, the the music kind of makes this Mr. Takagi seem uh, uncharacteristically aloof for a Japanese person. I mean, I feel like they're always kind of locked in, most of the Japanese people that I see, but he, he seems like a, a bit of a character, given the way the music uh, represents him. Yeah, I don't know who he is, but... Um, yeah. Sounds like someone I'd like to meet, though. Could be, yeah. yeah. So, in summation... Um, I, I liked uh, Pedron's sax playing a lot. Um, I can, you know, see his influences and uh, understand his individual character pretty well. Um, the other players are really great, um, and you know they gel together pretty well on here. There's a lot of looseness here, but it doesn't uh, get out of hand. The, I, I guess my main um, thing not knowing his playing and and seeing what he's done and you know he's in his uh, sort of mid midlife here and i assume in france he's amassed uh, a catalog and established playing but uh his own writing of tunes to me they're all quite oblique um mm. and the the melodies are very angular and things so th- i couldn't um latch on to anything in particular so for me like an album like this uh played with american musicians if there was one standard or an original by another like sax mentor like you know if he had like a gary bart's tune or something uh, at least sort of one inlet uh from something familiar it it may be a, a help to um the jazz listener not that any anything here i thought was um, you know too far out there or inappropriate but um his own writing to me is a bit angular and uh and so i'm looking you know for that branch to hang on to going from tune to tune uh and it's not a bad thing but uh you know just sort of a, a general yeah. comment on the composition it kept me interesting throughout interested throughout though some of the uh the textures i guess you could call them uh, that he creates especially in that song Trevis, they're they're really kind of intriguing and beautiful. This kind of this a nice sort of uh, thing to it. But yeah, I thought this was pretty abstract. It's kind of hard to remember. Yeah, uh, the individual works. I had to take like kind of extensive notes to so that I'd have something to hold on to right, when we right. were talking. You know, yeah. I wouldn't have remembered them otherwise. Well, but well, that's I, not that's not an insult. It's just kind of, it's just kind of there, there's a kind of palimpsest quality to these uh, compositions. And I take it that's um, you know part of his personality uh, is towards the free sense because uh you know the first few solos as i said the piano drops out and then uh mm. you know it's it's sax over bass and and drums you, you know 
I wonder if he sees that actually as the because he has so many Japanese titles. I, I bet that's part of what he thinks of as the Japanese aesthetic, the the constantly changing kind of quality of say like the Japanese garden through the through the uh, seasons and it could be. as you turn, I mean, I, you know things like that. You know the cherry blossoms in spring, things like that. You know, yeah, you these know, things sort of appear and then they're gone. You know, what's this? Thing. Uh, Corona debacle is uh, over. He'll be a name that I'll be looking for if he comes to Japan. Uh, yeah, we'll go I'd, check I'd him like out. To see him. Uh, his tone is attractive. He's got the intensity. Uh, you know, the angst and burn is in his playing. He he does some interesting things, uh, but he you know he's got the technique technique to play. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, impressive runs and things too. So seems to have the whole package. Um, yeah, let's see what uh, the French side with the electronic thing. I have a feeling I'm not going to like that as much as this one, but... Uh, <laughs> well, we'll uh, see. You know. We'll see. And so right. uh, that brings us to number two in the jazz this week, also French. And to me, this is the uh, big discovery of this week. I thought uh, so, too. Yeah. Not this to mention is, he does quite a few covers on this album as well that yeah, were pretty intriguing. But, um, this is the young up-and-coming French pianist Simone Chivalon. Mm. I hope I said that right. If I didn't, as I said, uh, I've already got immunity. Chivalon, I, I would Chivalon. guess. Chivalon. Yeah. yeah, whatever. I won't say Simon Chivalon. Chivalon. Uh, but he's a young fellow, 29 years old, and uh, he's got an album, uh, Light Blue, but that title is not new and young, as we'll see. Mm. He mm. is uh, entrenched in to some traditions and yes, they're, quite, they're quite varied but he's not and they're also very appealing yes so yeah. um he's uh, 29 this is second recording uh but his first trio recording um i guess he had a, a four or five piece uh group on his first outing here he is with uh, bassist nicolas moreau who sounds quite french but uh, drummer antoine uh pagonati that sounds a bit uh, mixed to me. French, Italian, I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, it happens uh, all the time could these be days. Either. <laughs> happens all the time. Anyway, uh, he's very uh, much uh, fitted to this trio format. And this is a splendid album. Um, it's a nice, unlike the uh, Padron recording, which is all originals here, we've got a mix of some interesting material to uh, work with and understand his personality. Um, <clears throat> we're going to start out with a few originals. The first tune is called Joy, and uh, this starts with a repeating, catchy, rhythmic riff, and he embellishes that as he goes on, and he carries the riff through his solo, solo and as he reworks pieces of it, uh, which is very nice. Uh, he's, uh, in his uh, technique, uh, you'll also get a feel that his uh, left-hand technique is quite develop and supporting of his uh, right hand equally uh, and his playing is very melodic uh, through the whole album uh, he inserts some extended uh, left hand chords at, chords at points and then uh, the tune returns at the end to uh, the sort of repeating uh, riff and there's some nice drum soling uh, over that too and uh, so it's a nice original tune to start things out what, what did you think the um, influence was on this uh, on this song? It's hard to say. Um, I was thinking Vince Guaraldi. Yeah, yeah. I was going to yeah. say that, and that comes up a little bit later. 
too. Mm-hmm. But I felt there's a there's a lot of Vince Guaraldi in his playing, and uh, when he when he comes to the final tune on the album, which is a, a Billy Strayhorn tune, an Ellington mm-hmm. song, but that was famously recorded by Vince Guaraldi, and mm. the way that he, um, you know, especially in his rhythms. Like mm-hmm. you know, people are familiar with the Charlie Brown tunes and that right. soundtrack, but also, also you know, Vince Guaraldi's other works. It, it, there's just something in that concept that he seems to have incorporated, whether consciously or unconsciously. Right. And, it doesn't actually sound like Vince Guaraldi, but there's something about the phrasing and the whole harmony yes. that the, the and the the jumpiness of it too. The yes. kinda, the, there's a there's brightness sort of to the rhythm. Spring yeah. to it. Uh, yeah. That I thought there. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah. Um, and uh, now, number two, this is another original tune, but this reveals a bit of his personality that comes up again, too. And this tune is a tune called Echoes. And uh, this tune is in 7-4 uh, time. You won't get to it unless you uh, uh, you know, start counting it out. But what's really cool about it is uh, there's an extra beat at the end of the phrase occasionally where there's a slight pause where it you know, it picks up to the new refrain. Uh, and so that extra beat helps it resolve. So it's a tricky time uh, signature, but he keeps this engaging theme with a nice melody going through it. And so um, I can see that he has, you know, sort of an appeal to uh, rhythmic sort of complications and sort of problems to be solved in his tunes and improvising. So I was intrigued by that. Um, then, surprise... Number three, we get a uh, French tune by Foray. Yeah. I actually had to listen to this twice to make sure that it was the Foray tune because it's not very obvious. It's not really no. on the surface. You and have to I, know the melody. You know, shall I butcher kinda... the pronunciation or will you do something? Après une rêve. Après, Après une rêve. rêve. Yeah. yeah. And uh, this one After um, a dream. It's, it's, it's it kind of suave because uh, he starts it out with the bass. So the, the theme comes in on the bass. Uh, and then passes it over to the uh, uh, piano. And then uh, for a young uh, fellow here, uh, as we'll see later too, but Shivayon, he pays respect to this uh, melody. He treats it very nicely uh, on its own. And then he starts to swing it and he finds some bluesy uh, bits within it. Um, But he's going to give it to you you know, as you will recognize it first, uh, and before he dismantles it, but he doesn't dismantle anything on this album too much. Uh, his solo then is very melodic, with he, a lot of rhythmic variation. He's really good at um, pulling out some different rhythms and things. And then uh, when um, the the tune turns around, the cadence, uh, the bass is very sort of emphatic every time on that. So each time the tune hits the cadence to come back to the beginning of the verse, uh, it, it's sort of emphasized with the bass. And we get a nice, uh, delicate ending. So it's a nice arrangement, being both respectful to the classical composition, but also finding some fun in that. So I enjoyed it. Hmm. Um, the next tune... Yeah. Uh, the Wanch, uh, another original by him. This one uh, has a very non-jazzy, uh, even rock beat. And start to listen to this melody, and the first thing I thought of, Beatles. Ah. Uh, it's Spe- very Speaking of which, we'll get to yes, that later. Yes, it's a very Beatlesque <laughs> melody that turns a bit bluesy into his solo and hints 
at things to come on this album. Yeah, indeed uh, it does. Uh, a lot of rhythmic variety in this solo. Well, again, staying very melodic. Um, and then moving on to um, number five, Middle Avenue, another original tune. This starts with a very cool bass line intro. And then if you are into counting, you'll realize this tune is in five of four. Uh, so a very... Uh, difficult uh, time signature to, to make sound natural but indeed he does and he shows us a new side of his playing here in his solo rather than being it's always melodic but this is very uh, intervallic solo uh, if you listen uh, you'll see he's emphasizing very different, different uh, intervals that he uh, inserts into that while at the same time doing some really nice uh left hand playing accompanying himself so yeah uh, technically really cool stylistically also really cool I was impressed by this number okay and then uh, I, I just want going back to Apollo and Arrive I thought that yeah. worked really well as a as a jazz tune I was really pretty surprised by yeah. that yeah you, you know he pulls it out I haven't heard you know this kind of thing so much since um, like Ike Quebec uh, pulled out you know some the, the, uh, tunes uh you know and uh made them really jazzy without anybody really noticing it uh that's a yeah that's a name i think you introduced me to his uh to his playing way back in the day oh, i don't remember yeah. it was a long time ago we'll yeah. have to do an oldies but goodies refresh kind of uh yeah. thing sometime but uh yeah i quebec uh yeah um yeah just something could, unknown uh, unknown oldies maybe you know could so. be yeah um but uh pulling out some classic things anyway yeah interesting influence and uh bringing classical into the jazz here uh and then we get uh, the title track uh light blue but it's not one mm -hmm. of his originals uh how interestingly reserved and humble he is to title the album after a monk composition. And, I thought uh, this was monk because of the harmonization of the yeah. melody. I thought I thought right away this sounds like monk, and I kind of couldn't I couldn't identify the tune. So All right. he gives it a really nice monk lilting treatment in the opening. We get a playful bass solo, and uh, he does the piano solo nice with just enough monk like dissonance and angular phrases but i get i get the feeling that uh uh Chevalier is a he can't be like non-melodic even if he tries because that's like his ingrained sense of playing so even when he plays angular it still sounds like you know really melodic it's like oh yeah of course that's what you would play you know that kind of inevitability to it um, mm -hmm. so you know I, th I thought you know his playing is always very uh, melodic but he does uh, channel enough of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, what's the right word? Monkishness, monkiness, monkitude. <laughs> monkish, monkish is, monkitude is a good word. Monkitude, that sounds cool. <laughs> Monk yeah, monkiness is kind of interesting because you got that religious quality in there yeah, too. Yeah, monkitude. You know? uh, you, you'll recognize it, uh, anyone who knows Monk's playing. So he plays Mon a bit monkadelic. of Monkadelic. And then uh, <laughs> we're going to get some... We're going to get some uh, French sauce uh, tossed in here. Um, we've got a couple of tunes. Uh, boy, can I pronounce this one? Can you pronounce it? Wait, where is this one? George, Let me see. Georges Brassens. This is... Uh, Dans l'eau de, de, de la Clairefontaine. Fontaine. Yeah, Dans l'eau de la Clairefontaine. In the water of the clear fountain. Yeah, so uh, yeah. this is a... Uh, 
a, a French famous uh, singer songwriter um, who was known to uh, play uh, also very harmonically you know, composed harmonically interesting uh, popular songs. And uh, so uh, probably unfamiliar to the uh, English-speaking audience, but uh, maybe well-known to him in his youth. The piano plays the melody from this song, and we get a nice bass solo. And uh, you can tell, you know, it's a very well-written song. It's got this beautiful harmonic progression, and it's just right. And he doesn't overplay it. It's kind of understated solo. Uh you know, comes out really nice. And then, more French. Uh, tune 8, La Mer. Right. Charles Trenet. Mm. And uh, this is... Uh, That's world, a great tune. A world classic, uh, chanson classic, uh, uh, French composer, lyricist, and singer and showman, Charles Trenet. And we Americans know this tune as... Somewhere Beyond the Sea by Bobby Darren. But unfortunately, the English, the English lyrics were unrelated to the uh, original yeah, French. Yeah, sadly. Lyrics. And I, I know the sadly. original French too because it's one of those tunes they, they Chartrenet gets played a lot when you're studying French because it, when you yeah. do songs, you know, because they're so traditional. Yeah. So uh, I was really, that's one of the things, one of my happy memories of my French classes is hearing yeah. like singers anyway, like Chartrenet. Chartrenet. Um, <laughs> I mean, any language you sing it in or anything, the the melody and harmonies are just great. And then, you know, yeah. it, it sort of propels itself when, you know, when it hits that bridge, it just, uh, it goes into a new territory. So you could sing any words to this, you know, you, you, you put any lyrics you want. Of course, we don't have any lyrics here, so that uh, mm -hmm. doesn't matter. But um, it gets a new rhythmic treatment. Uh, Chevalier, you know, he, he makes it really rhythmic and uh, of course the chords are great so he has a lot of fun over the harmonic structure and finds you know some new melodic ideas you know uh, I remember back some years ago uh, reading you know like the origin of some of these songs uh, that everyone knew in the English speaking world like uh, Beyond the Sea and My Way and these are originally like French songs yeah that, uh, in, a, in a way they're the first like world music that nobody knew about because you know they came from somewhere else and then you know they just in, uh, in, in, yeah I guess in, in, in the pre-internet age and especially in, in English speaking cultures everything had to be English and I thought that was kind of sad because I really liked language and I really wanted to hear yeah. all those original tunes I actually learned the, the, the My Way tune when I was in France too like for the uh, yeah. French class because I think like when radio first came out uh, and looking at the hits like in the 1920s in the US, you know, opera and foreign language, Italian and French songs were actually some of the uh, higher ranking popular tunes listened to uh, by people because you still had that sort of, you know, ethnic sense. And, um, mm. you know, but then suddenly everything okay. had to be. English. Uh, God, so. God forbid Americans become sophisticated. <laughs> That'll never happen. Yeah, well, it wouldn't happen anyway. <laughs> yeah. Even if they heard um, all these. I remember there was a period in the 1980s in pop music where we were getting a lot of European and really fun, yeah, you know, right. like foreign language songs. Influence, yeah. I, I remember 99 Luftballons. Oh, yeah, Nina. Nina. And there was a De Commissar by uh, Falco. Remember that song? Yeah, I remember that too. Yeah. 
My God, that's too long. And, and, then, and then it went I don't away. want to be drawn back to that period. It's too traumatic. That, then everything had to be English again. Oh, I loved the 80s. It was great. I was in college then. It was fantastic. Didn't have any responsibilities yet. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Simon, sorry for mm. digressing during your uh, yes. your discussion here. But, but that's what we do. <laughs> yeah, we do. But you pull it back and, and you go very Anglo with your treatment. Speaking of, of English, yeah. English uh, something by George Harrison. Yeah. And um, well, the famous Beatles song, something. Yeah. Something in the way she moves attracts mm. me like no. Uh, yeah, a beautiful lover. song as the Beatles did it as well. And it just yeah. works. It's just such a fantastic song. It just everything you, people do with it just seems to work. Yeah, it's I really mean, great. Even Sinatra liked this song. And uh, you can tell here as he plays it, he plays it fairly straight. There's just a little added color in the harmony I can tell in the interesting phrase but I'm not much uh, and uh, also uh, the bass player gives a little hint to McCartney in that the uh, bass takes some of those nice uh, melodic lines like Paul mm -hmm. McCartney would um, there's uh, some great uh, repeated ascending figures building into the solo but overall a respectful treatment. Uh, you'll be surprised at how straight he plays it, but I think the reason is he likes what's already in this song. I want to say uh, about this too. In the introduction, he he Chivayon plays um, a melody from another famous song, and I couldn't figure out what that song was. Uh, he plays like dun 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 dun. You know, it's something I've heard before, and I couldn't pull oh, it I'll out. Have to check that out. It's Maybe not the I Beatles. That. I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't. Yeah. Ah, I don't know if you figure it out let me know though, oh, I, yeah. I'm, well, I'm racking my brains for it I'm like, this is a yeah. famous melody and I'm like I, I, yeah. I, I couldn't really figure out what he was doing was he doing it over the something chords or was it just something else that was going to lead oh, in I, don't, I couldn't figure out, out what the reference was yeah, it may have anyway been a if anyone knows write to us like, a I'd couple like to know. whiskeys in but I'll, I'll check that out again of okay. course um, I, sh I should say uh, here you know that these um, Beatle tunes uh, have inspired a lot of jazz uh, recordings uh, notably recently, the great uh, guitarist Al Di Miola has uh, done two recordings of Beatle tunes. Uh, both of them are nice. I, I like the uh, acoustic one more and uh, our, you know, very uh, esteemed uh, pianist Dave Kikoski has made a couple albums of Beatle jazz and uh, those are yeah. great. And those are great. Yeah, I like those yeah, a lot. Those are really great. And when, as soon as Dave gets a new album out, it's going to it's going to be on here because uh, he's just <laughs> going to review awesome. every one of his albums. Yeah, every okay. one of his albums. Oh man, hope he doesn't do like four a year or something. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Dave, release some new ones. So, you know, we're going to get you talking on here too. Um, okay. And then uh, after Beatles, uh, what's more natural to go to than Ellington? Uh, yeah. So here we've got uh, A Flower is a Lovesome Thing uh, by Billy Strayhorn. Uh, in the Ellington band, uh, this was... Uh, uh, sort of uh, centerpiece for the uh, alto sax player Johnny Hodges. Uh, also, as we alluded to before, uh, the great pianist Vince Guaraldi uh, made a recording of this. Uh, it starts with very dense uh, piano chords at the beginning, and then Shivan uh, uh, plays it with a lot of space. But interestingly, he adds a few of those uh, Ellen. Ellen Tony-esque uh, runs uh, going up the keyboard uh, you know like Ellington would put in a lot of his ballads it was very nice and 
you know, he, he plays this one with a lot of respect too. And um, yeah, so overall, to me, this recording was a nice surprise. This this is a very talented uh, young player, but his playing is accessible to anyone. Uh, you could put this on, you know, for uh, someone who's not really a jazz fan, and they're going to like this. His original tunes, his writing is good, and it's melodic, just like his improvising. You know, so this guy has a melodic personality. Yeah, and it's highly appealing. Not only that, this guy, uh, Simon Chivaillon, plays, there's a lot of joy in his playing. You can kind of hear that he really loves playing the piano and and these tunes. It just just kind of comes out. It's, uh, you know, so it'll just, I think it'll pick you up if you hear it. Uh, This is definitely going to go into my collection next. I'm glad to have, finally have a a French uh, jazz pianist next to all my uh, Italian jazz musicians in this year's, in this Um, year's uh, collection. I'm going to definitely pick this one up on a CD. And, you know, if I said, you know, it shouldn't be this way, but if I said someone, oh, he's a melodic player, and then, you know, someone could also, you know, derive a negative implication like, oh, he's simplistic. Not at all. And those uh, interesting time signature pieces that he has on here uh, show that uh, he can take a difficult meter, he can make it sound easy and melodic and include a lot of rhythmic variety. Um, you know, so uh, hats off to him. He's got uh, the whole package here. And this is what I mean by, um, you know, presenting an album that's a great mix of original compositions that sound great, um, respectful uh, jazz tradition covers, including Ellington and Monk, and then, uh, you know, going out there on a branch to, you know, reinterpret a, a classical piece, uh, of course, French, but then a Beatles piece too. Uh, you know, what more could you ask for in terms of material? Uh, it's all there. And uh, then the band as a trio, the drums and bass, they're tight. They support each other. Uh, it's his first recording as a trio. Uh, fantastic. Uh, fantastic. Uh, wonderful. I want to hear more. Yeah, me too. Yeah. A plus on this one. Okay, so here we are floating in the clouds after this album, and then our last album brings us back to Earth. Yeah, the new cool. Uh, (laughs) So, okay, let's abandon... Yeah, that that title really uh, appealed to me. I was like, oh, a little Miles Davis reference there. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. Um, So Mm. we're all from the French French cloud uh, into uh, Germanic uh, territories here. It turned turned into a rain cloud. Yeah, a bit. Well, you know... um, so anyway, uh, what, what I mean is, though is that it's kind of dark. It's this is kind of a much darker record yeah, yeah. than the other two. Um, so this is um, the new cool by uh, David Helbach, uh, who is an Austrian-born pianist, uh, and uh, apparently he's active uh, in uh, Germany as a musician. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a trio, and uh, his sidemen are both German. We've got Sebastian. Studnitsky on trumpet and Arnie Janssen on uh, guitar. And uh, the concept for this album, which was the reason why I wanted to listen to it and talk about it, is sort of uh, the the new cool, which uh, harkens back to cool jazz of the uh, late 40s and 50s of the U.S., uh, which would mean uh, clear themes, melodies and harmonies with a strong rhythmic grounding, uh, and those qualities from 
the cool, original cool period, however, using the jazz vocabulary of today. Hmm. So, what happens with this? Well, it's uh, how 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 would uh, well, it isn't chilled out the way the old Miles Davis recordings no, are. It's a very it's heavy. Out. It's much heavier kind of. That's right. Feeling and, to uh, it, yeah. As uh, ladies have often described things to me, it's complicated, uh, but oh. n- not to me. Uh, here it is uh, in the. You're, you're obviously over listening in on my phone conversations. Then, oh, oh. Ooh. <laughs> is, that, is that? Does that account for your lack of intimacy, Michael? Oh, yeah. That's that's why. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> it's a different topic. Anyway, I was, um, we have. going to make. We, I was going to make a joke that I realized wasn't going to work. So it's here not going to work. So um, yeah. let's start out with an intimate tune here. Um, the great uh, Benny Golson classic. Uh, I remember Clifford, uh, of course, in uh, memor- memoriam of the great uh, Clifford Brown. Uh, you know, this is uh, from uh, post bop on uh, a tune that's been recorded a number of times, but probably never uh, like this. Uh, So what happens on this album is um, the uh, guitar with effects is left to create a very atmospheric sort of, uh, how can I say, sort of tonal palette of uh, Mm -hmm. tunes and uh, the piano alternates uh, you know playing sort of uh, uh, sort of you know stereotypical piano type things along with uh, covering uh, the bass sort of role in the tunes and going all over and then the trumpet uh, here uh, Stanitsky he has possibly the most airiest trumpet tone uh, of all time if you can imagine uh, Chet Baker with a few more missing teeth or Tony <laughs> Frusella with like uh, an you know I don't know uh, yeah, a breathing hearing... tube then you're going to get this sound it's not unattractive yeah. at all but it's like strikingly yeah. uh, breathy tone it reminded me there's a trumpeter there was a trumpeter a Polish trumpeter Tomasz Stanko who played like oh, yeah, this too yeah. with this really breathy tone yeah. He rec- who and he's recently passed away and this brought yeah. me to mind of that because I remember hearing a recording of his playing a few years back before he yeah. passed away so yeah. uh, we get on this tune I mean you know we, I've heard this recorded so many times but uh, yeah it's unusual you're gonna it starts out with this spacey atmospheric guitar tone uh, the piano hints at the melody before it actually comes in, and you get this sort of um, movie soundtrack quality. And then, finally, uh, Stanitsky enters with the tone, uh, this breathy tone, and then uh, the guitar uh, also alterating the phrase. There's a huge reverb on the trumpet. Uh, on this whole album, as set here, the tempo flows freely because there's no drums. Uh, and on this title track, there's no solos. This is a painting on a canvas uh, of I Remember Clifford. And uh, so you sort of see the soundscape they're uh, aiming at here. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Something different. Uh, taking a, a classic uh, kind of uh, post-bop tune and then uh, painting it in sort of... Uh, different colors uh, from modern things. Yeah, and this uh, really we, sets the tone for the rest of the album because yeah, it's going to go this way. It's going to show yeah. you what these what, these are these are sad sad people. <laughs> yeah, it could be. 
Uh, Maybe we're yeah, just well, uh, darker minded. Let's yeah, say. Yeah, the next tune is got a uh, dark title: "The Pandemic of Ignorance," uh, <laughs> which uh, may talk reflect, about setting a tone. <laughs> yes, it, it probably reflects most of our society. Well, certainly, right. no one listening to this program, if you've made it this far, um, they could have they could have written this forty years ago. Yeah, anyway. this is a Hellbox original. We got lots of synthy sounds, uh, making a wall of sound here. Uh, and we get some big syncopated uh, piano chords uh, that become a backdrop for kind of an echoey trumpet solo. Um, then uh, it, the third track, kind of an interesting take. Uh, we've got some Chopin, the uh, yeah. prelude in E minor, um, but uh, syncopated. And uh, not yeah. only if you think Chopin and, is and syncopated. And again, a little difficult to identify if you don't know what yeah. it is. Right? If you know this tune you'll kind of get it and then once you hear it um what was interesting to me i started like thinking in my mind because there's no drums on this album i'm going like you can imagine like a, and I, i'm like okay this is a bossa beat <laughs> if there's a drummer okay. he's playing bossa nova but it's not actually there uh the trumpet breathes some soft improvised phrases around yeah. the pretty melody and it's very sparse the guitar is subtle um yeah okay interesting chopin uh treatment uh followed by uh number four is a truth another hellbach uh original uh, we get a slightly varied repeating piano riff it starts out kind of like a rock feel uh the trumpet adds another line over it and then we get some uh, counterpoint on the guitar uh, trumpet solo and then uh, here uh, we start to get some more rock influence uh, there's a really tasty rock guitar uh, part over a low piano bass um, the intensity comes up and it sort of falls back softer with some uh, rispy trumpet before it uh, turns up to the end but uh, this gets uh, a bit uh, kind of rocky uh, on this hmm. tune uh, pushing it uh, the next tune, uh, another Hellbach uh, song, Hymn for Sophie Scholl. And uh, this starts with a rubato piano opening. The guitar adds some atmosphere, and uh, the trumpet enters here softly. And uh, this is uh, kind of like a lament. Uh, there's a kind yeah. of velvety quality to it. It's yeah. a sad but pretty melody. Uh, this is a very restrained piece on the album. Yeah, a hymn would uh, indicate something religious, I think. Yeah. And this particular piece has some of these really gorgeous chiming chords at the beginning. Yeah. I really liked uh, yeah. his, um, yeah, kind of thought of church bell. So I, I think Sophie uh, probably, uh, this is probably a memoriam, memoriam for her yeah. or something. It's I'm, a, I'm guessing a, just from the whole it's sound. It's not of it. happy, but it's brooding and, uh, yeah, it has some meaning to uh, him mm. probably. Then, um, Track six, uh, time after time. Um, this is, uh, yeah, as you thought, uh, Cindy Lauper and uh, the co writer yeah. of her tune, Bob Hyman. But let me tell this you, is this a- is not girls having fun. Oh, uh, I, I wrote that this is a particularly bleak version of this. Yes. <laughs> girls just want to cry. <laughs> Um, girl, so girl, this girl, girl just want to slit. I, I'm not going to say yeah, that. No. Yeah, girl just, just want to slit so, their wrists. I was yes, going to say it's horrible. Uh, to, yeah. So it starts with um, some mysterious. Girl, intervals. girl just want to jump off a cliff. I don't girl know. just gonna... want to end it all. Yes, this starts with some mysterious intervals on the guitar and some 
minor piano chords, and you'll still have no idea what this is um, from reading the Yeah, track you had list. to know the title first and then, from the title. The trumpet enters, and the, and the melody is altered and reharmonized in the beginning of the phrase to a minor, and it won't hit you until the the end of the first phrase of what this song is. Um, mm. And then... Um, you, you know, so they completely reworked this. In the middle of the tune, the trumpet uh, blows some real, like, synthesized chromatic lines, and the piano gets uh, uh, busy with the repeated low notes. And then it's interesting, it sort of morphs into something that's like a fanfare. Um, so this is a complete reworking of this tune. Um, it's very interesting, but as I said, it's not girls having fun. Uh, mm. It's, I'm amazed uh, at the staying power this song has, actually, because it, I remember it yeah. came out in the 80s, and you, you thought it was a big pop tune, but boy, it uh, yeah, I think we people had Miles really took Davis to do a version of it. And, it gets um, handed down, too. To, uh, it's it's, been, it's yeah. still being handed down to younger jazz musicians today. It's amazing yeah. that... Uh, and the, uh, what was the... Um, the that's the, still the around. The woman, uh, Eva Cassidy, mm-hmm. and uh, others, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's a haunting melody. Here, it's very haunting. <laughs> Um, it may keep you up at night. Um, uh, then we got another Hellbach tune, uh, Solidarity Rock. Uh, this starts out with some big repeating bo- bass note, piano chords, uh, guitar theme, trumpet weaves around in the background. I got a, then a soft contrasting section on trumpet uh, and uh, piano driving the bass. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a little rocky piece. And then. An, another interesting reworking uh, uh, from the old Cream tune by Jack Bruce, I Feel Free. Again, right. this is Cream, but not as you know it. Maybe more like cottage cheese or another form of milk. Well, uh, it's, it's a, the, the song of the, uh, the song's called I Feel Free, but uh, whoever's playing this, they, they don't feel free. It, mm. <laughs> Maybe so they feel a, free, but they're not free. You know, it's it's kind of identifiable. Uh, you'll get the harmonies. The piano comes in with some descending figures. Uh, trumpet and guitar weave mysterious melodies. Uh, and it gets kind of hypnotic. But there's there's definitely no place for Ginger Baker to come in. If you, if right. you know the original, uh, he'd yeah. be oh. locked down uh, to the wall in the back room. So yeah. I want to say I don't mean that they're not free in the sense that they're not playing freely. I mean, yeah. <laughs> just the this the the, the, the mood of the yeah. song is like doesn't sound like these people feel like they're free. Yeah. That's yeah. So please don't misinterpret that. Okay. Uh, then we've got um, not beyond the waves, but uh, on the shore, uh, Arnie Janssen tune uh, number nine. This starts out with some really ominous bass piano notes, um, but then. A soft uh, unison guitar uh, and trumpet melody comes on top, and they trade uh, improvised phrases and return to the melody. And this one is a very nice sort of uh, scenic effect. Uh, it is very evocative of being on the shore of the ocean. Uh, maybe a li- one of the lighter uh, tunes on the album and atmospheric. Mm. Um, then uh, number 10... Um, a tune by the trumpeter Sebastian Studnitsky called uh, Corona Solitude. Uh, this is in 6-8 uh, time. The trumpet plays a melody over uh, kind of uh, piano chords, and it opens up a bit more with some guitar. I'm wondering piano. if this is a 
coronavirus reference, yeah, I by think the way. It is, yeah. yeah. Somewhat inspired by the corona situation. Solitude, yeah, it kind of sounds um, like it might be. And definitely invokes a feeling of solitude here. Um, then uh, track 11, the old jazz standard uh, Angel Eyes by Matt Dennis. Uh, and then like, <laughs> again, uh, you'll get <laughs> Angel Eyes, but when it starts out, you'll be like, whoa, uh, yeah. there's a funky riff start here. Uh, <laughs> a very funky into some bluesy piano and trumpet doodling and then the uh, uh, guitar and trumpet work together until finally it mellows to this uh, familiar melody uh, in the trumpet over the piano. You know, uh, Angel Eyes uh, as played by uh, so many jazz musicians. And then, uh, but after that, a new rhythmic uh, piano backing starts and the trumpet and guitar uh, trade lines uh, and they start really going out there uh, away away from the normal uh, harmonic uh, progressions and the piano keeps it funky. Uh, but before they get way out there, uh, it comes back to the melody for the ending. And then uh, we've got a final tune uh, called Surrounded by the Night. And this is... Uh, credited to Peter Madsen, uh, some very low-toned uh, piano playing, uh, and then some echoey floating trumpet lines, and then the trumpet introduces the mournful melody, uh, guitar takes on a short interlude, and then joins the trumpet, and you really get surrounded by the night, by the uh, end of this uh, track, which ends the album, and mm. uh, yeah. Um, one, one more thing we should mention about this album. There are a lot of uh, altered instrumental sounds produced by the musicians, like yeah. things like hands on the piano, strings, yep. uh, spitting sounds into the valve of the trumpet, that you know that kind of sound. Yep. Uh, it's all atmospheric and dark. I always feel like uh, um, there are chimes in the piano and the guitar, har- there are like harmonics in the guitar, these kind of things. I feel like a lot of these sounds, though, when you're putting your hands in the piano and like kind of strumming the strings like it's a harp, it's always the same sound. And I think we've heard it. You know, I kind of, yeah, I, I, I kind of like hearing it. They place them well on this album. I mean, it, it adds to the atmosphere. I mean, but um, I don't know. I just kind of, I get put off by those sounds. Yeah. This, this album I thought was, I you know, I didn't dislike it, but it, it's just a little bit, a bit too much of a bummer for me. I kind of... It's not know. uplifting in any way. Um, yeah. I didn't dislike <laughs> it. Um, I was yeah. intrigued. When I was I, interested when, to hear it, yeah. Yeah, I was interested. I, I was sort of intrigued by the extremely breathy uh, trumpet, uh, you know, sound. Uh, but then even the trumpet... Uh, gets sort of processed. Uh, he's using some sort of effects in some place there. Uh, the guitar effects are used as atmospherically too, mostly tastefully, I, I would say. Um, but the, the sort of overall uh, impression of the recording is very atmospheric. Um, and I, I'm not sure that aligns with my idea of the cool. Um, yeah. I, I mean, the, the arrangements are interesting. Uh, they do generally keep it uh, melodic. Uh, I like the freeness of not having uh, drums because the tempos become free. Um, but at the same time, the interpretations to me 
are, uh, especially in the piano rhythmic choices, become a bit more popish than jazzy. Um, it's certainly original, though. I mean, the, yeah. the approach is very, you know, unique. So I didn't I dislike it, but at the mm -hmm. same time, um, I don't. When I when I listen to cool jazz, I'm sort of left with a breezy effect, and here I'm sort of left, you know, sort of with like a low pressure system a bit. So, uh, yeah, to me, it's not really the new cool. I I enjoyed it. It's um, the new something, though. I don't know. It's new something, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I do like the combination, uh, guitar, piano, and trumpet, but it, it didn't. It was sort of unexpected final result for me from it. So, yeah, and there we go. Um, another. So so there it is, listeners. You've all been Frenched. You've been Frenched, and now it's time to get a Brazilian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Can I get a Mongolian instead? Because uh, I don't know. I don't know. All right. From the so neck anyway. down, I, I don't think I have that much time to commit to this uh, process. So. so, so listeners, thanks for listening. Please give us five star rating. Write to us and explain to me what "get a Brazilian" means, because I, I I really don't know. I just heard it and repeated it. So I think it means like have a sandwich from that meat on the big. Um, skewer, I, I, doesn't it? I, I don't think that's what it means. Really? Because <laughs> that's what I. But I, I'd do. be willing to redefine it that way. <laughs> I thought it was a, a barbecue kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess in a way you could say it is, but I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. But anyway, if yeah. you like the podcast uh, and you'd like to hear more, please uh, do uh, subscribe, follow on whatever platform uh, you listen to us on, and if you could take a moment to give us a rating or write a comment. It'll help us get uh, five, five stars, please. Five stars. Five stars. We're new. We need, Nothing we need it for the algorithm. That's right. If you don't um, like us, don't rate us. <laughs> if you look at the music commentary categories, it is plagued with K-pop podcasts. And how much can there be to say about K-pop compared to the European uh, Western classical tradition and the continually evolving jazz idiom? Hmm. It can't be worth as many stars as... Uh, those things. So, well, um, I guess it depends on who you are. <laughs> I guess it depends on who you are. That's right. Yeah. If you, uh, in any case, um, we also, we are after all aging and uncool. So that's right. There you go. Um, yeah. But whatever platform you listen to us on, also remember that uh, on our uh, you should be able to see it on whatever platform you listen to. But in the uh, episode description, we do include the links to Apple and Spotify. Um, streaming for all the albums we discuss. Uh, but even more convenient is the complete podcast playlist on uh, Deezer, uh, which you'll find all the music in one place, all six hours of it for each episode. One click, you can listen to all of the tunes. And uh, you can also follow us there on Deezer uh, or on any of the other any, major platforms. Yeah. We're on all any of site. those. And, um, yeah. You know, so adultify uh, your tastes in music. Uh, give, taste give it a listen music. and enjoy. There's some give good stuff listen. out there. That's right. Uh, there, there's uh, stuff for adults too. There, there. We just need to to hear it, to be exposed to it. Just be exposed. So yeah, we had a French take. I'm not sure what mm. next week will bring, but I will say that uh, in the next few weeks, there's some big surprises uh, coming up in the personal context area. And we'll leave it at that. 
um, and we'll see what comes up in the next few episodes for new tunes but there's a lot of music being released uh, in the early summer in both classical and jazz recordings and so until next week this has been adult music episode 15 and we'll see you again soon mm -hmm.